Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Um, I realize it's been a little bit since the last episode came out. I meant for it to happen sooner. I, I had this interview done with Heinz a while back and I knew that we weren't done our conversation. We have more to record and we've we've chatted a couple times since then. And so I wasn't sure if I should hold on to all of it, put it together, figure out like logical breaks to break it up into to to you know realistic podcast episode lengths, or if I should just release it as it is as I go. And recently just decided, you know what, I'm just gonna start releasing it because it's gonna be really hard to put it into sections or segments because the conversation really is fluid and it has flowed everywhere. You know, as we talk about one topic, we just kind of slip into another one and then back and then over to a different thing. So I figured in the end that, um, you know what, we're just going to go with it and I'm going to release it. So that's that. Also, um, my mother-in-law has just flown back to Iran and surprisingly, it's really hard to be a parent. So if you're listening and you have kids, you probably are thinking, oh, you had your mother-in-law here for six months helping take care of the newborn, cooking, cleaning, doing all these other things. Like, you were so lucky. And and we really were. It's like something you don't really appreciate as much as you think you should until it's over and they're gone. Um, but she'll be back next year. So fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, so we did some little trips. We took her to Niagara Falls. We did a couple other little things. Um and it was just a really, really nice time together. But it also means I, I didn't work on podcast stuff. And also biking season has officially started in Canada over the last month or so. And um, I have got out for a few rides and it's been awesome. Slowly kind of building up the, the muscle strength again because I personally find that it doesn't matter how much you ride on a trainer. Um, well, I guess it does matter, but... Um, for me personally, riding on a trainer, it doesn't do much to help my arms and shoulders and ass and just taking impact on bumps and stuff and all these things that, that wear your body down. So it's really, it's just miles in the saddle. You got to get on the saddle. You got to start riding and, and, um, break your body back into it, you know, and I'm getting there. So I did, um, while I record this was yesterday, April 26th was my birthday and I did a 110 kilometer gravel ride. What a great way to spend your birthday. I loved it and came home, went for dinner and um, yeah, so all in all, perfect birthday. And we bought a camper. Um, it was a big decision. We, we've been humming and hawing about it and trying to find something that's within our budget, which it's not much of a budget anyways, but we did find a camper finally, which means um, our little trip uh, west 
this year in the summer is going to happen. And particularly what makes that awesome is I am going to register for the Alberta Rockies 700 and I'm going to put up my wife in either a hotel or a campsite. We've booked one for now, but uh, it depends if she has somebody there with her and um, she's letting me ride my bike. So God damn, I love that woman. Anyways, but yeah, before I can ride my bike, I got to get a bike. So I have the frame, I have the brakes, I have a lot of the components, but I don't have the wheels and the drivetrain yet and the rotors. And a huge shout out to Brockton Cyclery, one of the newest sponsors of this podcast for helping me out and giving me a little bit better pricing to make these things happen so that I can uh, do these adventures and talk about them on the radio like this or the the internet. So yeah, um, all this has kind of been happening fast and I I can't wait to go to Toronto in the next uh, couple weeks to pick up all that stuff. And we have another really cool uh, little thing going on too that will be talked about soon and uh while i record this i'm recording it on my brand new roadcaster pro which is a uh, podcasting digital interface that is just like i don't know man it's like it's like the titanium bike of bicycles you know it's it's awesome it was expensive um i hummed and hawed and tried to decide for quite a while what i should buy and in the end i decided to go with the road just because i had so much ability to to post process as I record and not have to like physically do it all after. So hopefully this comes out sounding pretty good. And I think there's a few little adjustments that still need to be done. Like the S's I'm trying to uh, adjust that. So it's not so, uh, you know, that S sound, but uh, that just takes time. So as I listen to some episodes that I record, I'll be able to hear how it sounds and uh, make further corrections from there. But I could not have got this recorder without um, some fantastic patreons supporters of the podcast i had to put it on my credit card because what i didn't have enough and i just finished paying off all the annual fees and stuff except for the uh podcast host that one's coming up in june but i decided i I just can't wait anymore it was like it was one of those things that was killing my motivation is having to spend hours doing post-process editing and i thought you know what if it works and it it makes it to it's down to like one to two hours it's worth the investment. And part of that deal with my wife was that I will pay the interest that's on the credit card while I pay this off. So that'll be covered under, you know, coming out of my funds from Patreons and whatnot. And, uh, but sometimes it's just the sacrifice you have to make. And, um, on that note, if you do like the podcast and you think it's awesome and you enjoy listening to it and you say, Hey, Chris has some really good audio going on. And I highly encourage you to consider, Signing up as a Patreon, it's not super expensive. It's probably the cost of a coffee or a burrito or some uh, corner store junk food as you're biking away. An energy gel. They're not cheap nowadays either, you know. Not super expensive, but definitely goes a long way to help me make this podcast what it is. Um, That's one thing I got to stop doing. I got to stop saying, um, otherwise I'll be editing for hours still. But anyways, I do want to thank my newest podcast Patreon supporters, and that would be Chris DeSisto, Ryan Phillips, and my good man, Dave Whale, who has been supporting me from very much the beginning of when I started the Patreon. And he has just recently upped his contribution to the highest level there is. So I thought I should give him a new shout out because that's amazing. And he has also sent me a PayPal donation as well. And 
in the message said, hey, man, this is extra towards your new recorder. So, Dave, thank you. I did decide to not wait six more months, but to get the recorder now and um, figure it out as I go. But uh, hopefully, hopefully some other awesome people out there like Chris, Ryan, Dave and all the others sign up and help out. I appreciate it. I should add one more thing about Dave before we carry on here. And it wasn't that long ago that he messaged me and told me his garage in Colorado where he lives was broken into and somebody stole his touring bike with all the bags attached and everything. And so, you know, that is massive that he, he's gone out of his way to help me out like this because I can totally understand how big an impact that has on someone. He also happens to be the guy that won the frame bag from me uh, in the lucky draw I did. And surprisingly, it wasn't on the bike yet. It was still in his house, so he still has the frame bag. (laughs) Anyways, thanks again, Dave. I really do appreciate it. But anyways, uh, (laughs) it's so hard not to say. um, uh, I'm not even going to edit this out. Yeah, you can do that at patreon.com slash bike to adventures. Jesus, now that I know I'm saying it, it really drives me nuts. But uh, the Bike Pack Adventures website is still coming along. It's still getting there. I mean, if you if you are in Canada and you know of a good bike packing route that you've ridden or you have a friend that's ridden, and uh, you can go to submit a route on the website and get it added to the site, and that would be really awesome because it would just help it grow and be better and better. Um, as well, the Grand Apart for the Canadian Shield Bike Packing route is happening on July 3rd leaves Chelsea, Quebec at 8. And as I mentioned many times before, there are three distances you can choose from. That's 400 kilometers, 1,000 kilometers, and 1,300 kilometers. So there is something for everybody. I mean, me personally, I'm probably only going to ride the 400 this year. I mean, I've ridden just about every inch of all the other parts. I just have a couple things to touch up on uh, once I get my new bike in two weeks. But I'm planning another event two weeks before this, so I don't know if my legs and body will be in shape to do longer than 400, but I might do the 1,000. We'll see. I haven't fully decided yet. just depends how my recovery goes. That is it. And uh, we can uh, now go on to the intro song. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you will be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring and bike packing. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys, and through both mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike touring or bike packing and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already an experienced bike tourer or bike packer, I hope that my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show and keep on pedaling. Hello. Hello, is this Heinz? Yes. It's Chris calling. How are you? And how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Let's uh, let's talk. Right, and you go ahead. And I don't know if the sound is very good because I have the the cable lesson. I don't know if it's that perfect. Is, uh, no, it's very very good. 
In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I'm really excited to introduce you to Heinz Stuck. For those of you that may not know who he is, I'm about to tell you. Starting in November of 1962, at the age of 22, Heinz rode out of his town on a three-speed bicycle with the general plan to see the world. He would ultimately travel over 600,000 kilometers by bicycle in a journey spanning 50 years and covering enough distance to circumnavigate the world 15 times. Never giving up on his beloved bike, it had been stolen and recovered five times, welded 16 times. Heinz lives by the motto, be carefree, be mad, be a little bit bad. It's the unknown around the corner that turns my wheel. Heinz, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. <laughs> the slogan, be careful, be mad, be a little bit bad, is actually I picked it in the United States somewhere in the 60s, you know. Ah. And, 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 and so I, and, and recently uh, the postcard, there was a kind of a postcard that showed that, um, that saying, and, and I kept using it sometimes, you know. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> But uh, some of the things you, you just picked, the statistics, you may have not known the all of it because it wasn't stolen five times. It was stolen six times, you know. Six times. Ah. Oh. Yeah. That's no, right. Now it's been corrected. And now everybody knows. <laughs> many things. Uh, I don't know if you read the booklet probably that uh, you have. It might not be updated to the mm. last so sometimes things not, and I'm not started to, uh, to to stay away for such a long time. How can you? No, exactly. It's impossible to say that you will stay away for 50, 50 years. You know, it, 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 it developed and it wasn't planned that way. It was planned mm-hmm. for a couple of years. I had done some um, previous uh, shorter journeys around the Mediterranean, a few months, and and uh, the first uh, lap was something like about a year of traveling before I I did. I said, look, I, I want to do my last fling. Uh-huh. Another couple of years before, you know, the the responsibility of life, the the work and family, maybe a woman and things come. And so it was supposed to be, okay, I started in 62 and 64. I wanted to be in Tokyo for the Olympics. Yeah. Can I ask and, you a question, Heinz? Um, so you, you were born in 1940. And um, yeah. just to jump back before we get into the tour, but just to know a bit about you, um, what was it like growing up in, you know, post-World War II Germany in the, the 1950s and 60s? Or? I have very little recollection of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I know some of what my, my my older sisters told me or what what I later um, was told about. Um, it wasn't, it was, you know, it was kind of exciting because because uh, something was always happening. The, the occupying forces were there. Sometimes we were uh, quite excited with the other kids uh, waving to uh, military vehicles mm-hmm. on the road. They were throwing chocolate out, and we were <laughs> fighting for who is going to get the chocolate and stuff like that. You yeah. know. And, but, and you uh, were in the, the west of Germany, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were different, uh, I, I mean, right after the war, well, at the end of the war, I was five years old. So I don't really, I have, I have very few recollections. Mm-hmm. I, I know that some, but somewhere the rec- wreckage of a, of a downed airplane was uh, burning um, on a way that my father had built a, a sort of what they call Behelfsheim, sort of a temporary housing. We, 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 were, we were living on rent in another house. And so between the two houses, we, we were taken back and forth. And I, we, I passed one, one time a place where the wreckage of, a, of an airplane was lying on the soil. I mean, things like that I remember, but okay. that's very, very few things. Basically, you remember the things actually in life 
that you have re-remembered and therefore you remembered it remember it until the end of your life. But if somebody you meet that for many, many years you haven't met and he tells you about something, don't you remember that? There's a thing that he remembers, but if you know how, you didn't have re-remembered it, you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what this guy is talking about, you know? Right. And, and so growing up in the, this, you know, I, I think post-World War II, Germany was industrialized, like it already, the industrial machine had started during the war, but I lived in a, valley, I lived in a village, you know, it was, I wasn't, the city was, was okay. quite a way away. Okay. And so we were also not uh, directly, you know, the effects of bombing, I mean, just the city 15 mm. miles away, it was the way Parabon was completely bombed in the last few days of the war. But uh, the villages usually escaped from it. Later, people from the cities were coming and trying to 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 find food. You know, we call them hamsters. You know, they they were they were going to the farmers and and they they brought some some uh, you know some jewelry or something and and, and then they would uh, exchange it for food. Oh wow! So. And, and my father did that too when he when he came back to you know, he had to feed the family. Yeah. And many things were not available. So he would go to the uh, the the farmers and they always um, came through the war reasonably well, I mean, regarding food. And, and and so many people, many city people were around the villages and and and, and trying to knock at doors and, and trying to get uh, to exchange some of the values, some of the stuff that that I mean, we call it hamstun. I don't know this word. I don't know in English, okay. but uh, but it's it's uh, trying to to get some food somewhere and try to feed the family. You know. Yeah, kind of like a barter system, like barter whatever you had. Huh? What kind of made you want to to bike and see the world? Like what? How did this come? Well, how did this I, idea come? Was, well, uh, reading about, um, I, I mean, the, I was 11 when I heard about uh, a German guy when, well, he had a family and he was a journalist and and he didn't have a job. And so he, uh, he had the idea of cycling the world and to use it uh, to for publication and to uh-huh. write about it, you know. And this, his name was Heinz Helfin. And he was... Uh, and he also every week you would hear there was something in the radio called the Schulfunk, some program for okay. uh, for for students, you know. And and I listened to that, and there was always always a story about that guy who was cycling around the world. But he was a journalist, you know, and he was made it made things up. I mean, later when I, when I when I think about it, that in the two years that he traveled, he had uh, the most incredible encounters, you know. <laughs> but so. <laughs> In, in my 50 years, this this kind of things wouldn't have happened, you know. But he finished <laughs> in two years. But you you have to be very careful with with guys that are journalists, you know, because I I haven't met a journalist yet who got it right, you know, because he has an idea of what I should think, and when I say something, he's not listening. Correct. Are you listening? <laughs> I'm listening. I'm not a journalist. I'm just a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a different different time in history now. <laughs> I, anyway, that's uh, sort of the first um, adventures of that guy, and so that, that stuck with me. And then later, there was this uh, German writer, Karl May. Uh, he uh, published something like 60 books about his travels to different parts of the world in the 
in the 19th century and 18th oh, wow. century okay. and 19th century and all his adventures and and he was he was writing in the 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 eye uh, way that means uh, it sounded like he really did the journeys it was a disappointment when i eventually found out that he didn't go to any of the countries that he wrote, wrote about in all his encounters with with uh, with you know, he's a good guy of course and 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 a lot of bad guys you know in all the yeah, encounters yeah. and adventures and fights and the Indians in America and I mean names that Americans don't hardly know about but but everybody in Germany knows the books of Karl May you know mm-hmm. and, and, um, and and most of the the time was it is the uh, the Muslim countries that he traveled mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and of course the Indians in North America, and the fights between the the advancing uh, West and the defending of the Indians, and he took the side of the Indians, of okay, course. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and so that, I would read books like that, and I read probably half of the books that he published, like like 30 books or something, and they were always quite 600, 500, 600 pages long, you know? and, and, and so and I, I maybe that's probably installed some kind of of um, lust for adventures and um, something similar. And then I heard about a story about some, uh, um, a couple went around the world by bicycle and, and, uh, and as they, as they reported about it and uh, found that it hardly started with any money. So they mm. were always assisted on the way and it, it said, okay. Uh, and they were of course celebrated when they came back and they were kind of heroes. And yeah. so, uh, I think I, so I suppose these kind of stories and things are installed some kind of intention that I would want to do the same, you know. Okay. And then, of course, <laughs> you you have to you have to know what what you want to do. Do you want to study? You can't study, you know. It's, uh, my father, he was a, a carpenter. He didn't he didn't uh, think about any any uh, think he would go to university or something. It was it was no no. You had to you had to learn a trade. Yeah, my dad and, was the so same the, way, and that's quite a while later. <laughs> There were only a few few chances you had to. Uh, you could be a, a turner, a fitter, a toolmaker, or or a carpenter or something like that. He he was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to become a carpenter because all the time in the he had a little workshop and he worked at the factory. And in the evening, often I had to come 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 to do. And I, I had to give him the hammer and I had to give him the tools and I had to do this and how to do that. And on weekends, I had to clean the the cages. Of he, he was a poultry farmer as well. Okay. And and so I, I wasn't very um, enthusiastic about. Um, I wanted to play football, and first I had to do my job, and then I make. Uh, if I was lucky, I could leave for the for the for the for the gym to do some football playing or something. So I, it was out of the question that I would become a carpenter. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and but eventually I decided. Yeah, make up your mind. Come mm-hmm. on, make up your mind. I choose to be a toolmaker, and I went through this uh, three and a half years of apprenticeship. And uh, in that time, when uh, the break came in the summertime, you know, what you do? You want to see something. And so you you have no vehicle. You have a foot is too slow. And, and so you put a bicycle, you know. Yeah. And that's what happened. And so every time, I, every year, um, the, the journeys became a bit... Uh, more daring and um, uh, in first neighboring countries I went to and every time I, I got uh, somehow somebody who, who came along with me 
<clears throat> but they obviously didn't like it because I never uh, traveled with anybody the second time around because I suppose <laughs> they had to... They had their fill when they went with me the, the one time and then that was enough, you know, yeah, because yeah. they were sweating and it was a hard job and I, maybe I was pushing them, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw pictures of you when you were young. You were pretty, uh, you were pretty tough looking at, on the bike. <laughs> no, I was, uh, I was the shortest in school and, uh, <laughs> and I was teased all the time, but I had, I had temperament. So sometimes they call me the the giftswerk, you know, they call it uh, the, the poisonous dwarf, you know, they mm, call me. Yeah, you, well, you were built like a rugby player, so you were like... I'm not a rugby man, you know, I, I'm not the size <laughs> of a rugby player, I'm not the size of a football player. <laughs> and one, one sixty-five, <laughs> you're the ah. in class, my God. But I mean, you have to, regardless, you, 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 uh, you have to play tough mm -hmm. you know, have you ever seen a cat and a big dog and the and the dog and the, and the, and the dog wants to the box with the cat and the cat gets angry and and he, the cat will always win the fight oh yeah <laughs> and the dog can get a, a bloody snout in the, in the fight i've watched cats and, and dogs fight sometimes you know and the dog is always the one who puts the tail between the legs and and disappears soon yeah cats are <laughs> very the, very quick cats, uh, it's like a fury then you know mm -hmm. and that's sometimes with other things as well you know so you you have to you have to uh, stand your uh, uh, your man or whatever you call your, 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 your small man. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, you, you just figure it out what, what made you do what you did, you yeah, know, I... but um, and in the end it is uh, irrelevant because as I started and I found my way and I thought it was great free life and I was always enthusiastic people and I was young and I was nice and, and they wanted to help a, a young uh, fellow and, and so, uh, and then when I finally did this, uh, then there was one big, big journey, and it was very unusual to, to in the 1960s to be, I was, I was one of the few first people that ever managed even to get into Russia without even a visa, you I, know. Yeah, I saw that 60s. in the, the booklet, that's amazing. I took well, I took that ride in the Trans Siberian. I mean, I wanted to ride the bicycle to there, but they always said, "No, we haven't got roads in Siberia." Mm. Blah blah blah. They put me back into the stage. They inter interrogated me in one place, and then eventually, <laughs> I was I was confronted confronted with the with the interest uh, office in in Moscow, and they say, well, "Who gave you the permit to enter the country?" You know. <laughs> And they said, sorry, we haven't got anything for people coming by bicycles, and they kicked me out of the country. This bit of an adventure into Russia, was that prior to the 1962 bike tour? Yes, of course. Yes, it was, know, right? It was in 58. I went around the ah. Mediterranean when I was 18 years old, yeah. and four months, four and a half months. And then in 1960 to 61, I started overland over the East uh, India. To Vietnam, right? right? If I remember. And to go from, from uh, Sri Lanka, mm. uh, Ceylon, it was called in those days, to go to South Africa. But I couldn't get any any working passage on ships, and there was this Norwegian um, um, tramp uh, liner that um, several people were sick, mm -hmm. and the rule was because of unions and things they couldn't um, uh, hire Indians or or they could only hire Europeans, oh, and okay. I was. Yeah, and I was, uh, the, and they needed somebody, and, and they were going to Singapore, and then 
They didn't even know at the time because they picked up orders as they were going. You know, oh, yeah, that's what they call yeah. a Trump ship or something like that. I don't know what you call it in English. but So then they got the order to go to North Vietnam okay. and to pick bananas and to take bananas to Russia. Oh, wow. To, uh, near Vladivostok. Vladivostok was not a place where, where anybody could go because it was a military, exactly. military mm-hmm. uh, area. So we went to a place called Nahotka, about 60 miles away. Nahotka, okay. And we, uh, we discarded the bananas. Three journeys I did back and forth. And, and the second time already I tried to ask about, what about if you, if you leave the ship there and go through Russia? And, and then they, they showed me a guy and, and, and the second time around he wasn't there. And and then it was uh, to my uh, to my favor that at that time the first time a Japanese delegation came, uh, they they come by ferry from Japan and they landed at Nakoto and they were going by one of the few people that foreigners that were allowed at the wow. time to go by the Trans-Siberian train, and so so and uh, so the guy said, oh well the Japanese can go, they give the permit to this guy who wants to go through Russia, so he gave me whatever. Authority had to to let me into the mm-hmm. country. You know, that's amazing. I uh, yeah, I did the Trans Siberian, but it was uh it was many many years later, and and not that many years ago. I think it was two thousand and nine. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then of course it became a touristy thing. You know, it was organized as well. It was still not all that uh, simple, but um, but at my time, at the nineties, of course, when the Soviet Union um, fell apart. Uh, it was it, 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 anybody could easily go there for something like a hundred dollars or something to go from from Vladivostok yep. or even from Beijing to Moscow and I mean this was a, a thing done by thousands. Yeah, even um, but, even when I did it in two thousand and nine, I because I speak some Russian as well, I was able to just buy my tickets as I went for the Platzkart, the the cheapest tickets. But if yeah. you go on a tour, you pay like. 2,000 euros, but I think I, I know, did it for about $250 or something. Essentially, uh, I mean, once you are in the country, then nobody really checks it. But if you're yeah. organizing it, then they ask you to have a confirmed... First class. Uh, <laughs> yes. Conf- no, yeah. Not only the, uh, a, bet, a better berth in the train, mm-hmm. if you go by trans but also when you want to get out, you have to have a hotel room and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, you know? exactly. So then they charge you Western uh, prices. And you you often can't even pay with with rubles, you know. But once you're there, and you get away from from those uh, those guides and things, and you can you can pretty much do what you want, you know. Yeah, exactly. Later, I had visas for Russia, and got to, they call it a business visa. They were not cheap to get, but once you arrive at any place in Russia with this business, there was no check in your your, your luggage or anything, and and you could you stay as long as you wanted, you know. Ah. I had three or four times visa like that for which was usually valued for one year. And multiple entries, and they never checked anything when I arrived there. And I arrived many, many times later in, in many different journeys I did there. You yeah. know, 1960 was a different story. No doubt. All right, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about your bike because I think you had a you use your bike for many, many, many years. Um, why don't you tell us a yeah. bit about it? A bike is a bike is a bike. A bike is a bike is a bike. Yeah. <laughs> 
it, unless you uh, you have a racing or uh, athletic attitude, you would want to have a, a bike with as many gears and things like. What, uh-huh. but, but the bike is is a a vehicle that mainly I wanted to carry my stuff because right. I wasn't. I, I didn't think it was a good idea to carry 20 kilograms on the back of you, or you know, and of course, <laughs> you uh, on foot. You know, you are, I mean, the bike is is not is not very fast, but yeah. it's much faster than walking. For sure, and it carries your stuff. You know, and it's a very good passport because everybody knows that a guy on a bicycle it can't be a bad guy <laughs> that's true i don't think i've ever met a bad person on a bike <laughs> and then and, and it became my passport and the, the traveling the athletic side was not important for me for mm-hmm. me it was from Important to go into the country to taste the country up to a certain time um, when um, when you when you have known about the food and you knew about the people and you know a little bit about the language and depending on the size of a country you would need like two three months but that it was that was the time you needed to get the taste of the country you for know. sure later you would have to have special interest to stay longer and then you would have to get a, a, a job or something like that and that was always the time when I kept moving on uh-huh. you know I would go to the next country and I would do the same and then I managed of course with with my my uh, my good reception because I had the bicycle with me I uh, I managed to live on uh, next to nothing mm-hmm can I ask you if um how much I mean I know your bike was I think I think I read that your bike was specially made for you um No it wasn't It wasn't specially made for you uh, it, it wasn't it was only it, <laughs> I uh, because I had other bikes when I, when I went around the Mediterranean yep. I had a bike and when I the first year I had a bike and then I went to a a company here and asked them if they would sponsor me a bit and I would ride their bicycle it oh. was called Fatherland. And, and they said yes, they would, but the, but the departure date came, and 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 the bike was never delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, we went there once, and in fact, we had an accident on the way. And and then in the last, I said, look, let's forget about that bike. And I I play football in the in the county that I stay in. Mm-hmm. My Herbalo is. I played in a football team. And, and so I was a bit known in the area, and um, and then uh, the, um, uh, the there is a bicycle company uh, in the in the, the, the Parabon, That's just a couple of miles away from where I live, and and so oh the footballer of Havelhof, uh, he wants to ride our bicycle. Welcome, you know. Ah. And I, at their place, Tree Party was called it. At their place, I told them about, uh, you know, I had to always, uh, earlier, some, you know, the, the, the carrier would break, and so I would tell them, I want some, I want something, reinforcements. It was a standard bike, but a few okay. things were reinforced. Mm, and it I was see. just a big, heavy clunker. <laughs> Three speeds, I believe, right? Yeah, but they are the three speed is yeah, the torpedo everywhere had in those days. Yeah, except except the um, the, the racers they had the, uh, 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 how do you call them uh, uh, derailleur gears. Okay, yours was and, internal. And, and hub, right? They are not the hub gears. I had a hub gear. You know, this is inter- mm-hmm. interior. Yeah, 
An internal There's deer. a very good mm-hmm. one on the market now. It's called Roloff. Roloff, yeah. It's 14. Everybody loves it. It's a bit expensive. But, <laughs> and it's expensive, yeah, but that's not really the point because mm-hmm. as I got more publicity, most of the things I needed on the bike, they were given freely. Repairs were given freely. And uh, so that was, wouldn't have been a problem to yeah. to make your uh, uh, Roloff. Uh, get me a, a, a 14 speed, uh, in, yeah, but the problem was it wouldn't fit in my bike, you know. Ah, okay. So you, yeah, you had to have to change bikes too. Uh, uh, no, but the the the, the frame was um, was not uh, very suitable to to why it would have been if I really would have wanted to. They would have do, uh, done some uh, repair works on on, the, on in the back of the bike, and we might have found a way to mm. put the uh, roll of in into the frame as well. But it was just uh, too much of a headache. Once once I had some people that were asking why why don't you ride with a roll of and and these were people from roll of and I said oh go go ahead and see, see that if you can get one I mean it was like a thousand euro a thousand euro was the roll of alone but but as, somehow it, it it never came okay um, to uh, to be realized that I uh, that they would uh, would have been interested enough to try to get into my bike a roll of they said why mm-hmm. did you buy, buy a mountain bike you know it's time uh, when I rode started that there, there were no mountain bikes on the market you know? yeah 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 I think mountain bikes started in like the 80s or something as yeah, a real no, thing. And, um, I would say, yeah, in the late 70s or something, okay. yeah, it would have been. And I mean, it was really quite, actually quite good. As the mountain bike started, there, there were some <clears throat> measurements that were suitable to the bike that I had, you know, because the problem in those days was the English measurement were always different from the from the, the continental measurements, oh, okay. especially with the tires and the wheels, mm-hmm. 26 inches and stuff like that. So, um, like in Australia in, in the 1973, when I did, a, did an extensive tour to Australia, I couldn't get the tires with my machine, you know. And it was having it sent, you know. I've tried to say I have something sent uh, in, in some places, but it took ages. Sometimes it disappeared. Sometimes it took ages to find it in the customs uh, in the third world. It's, mm. It wasn't a good idea to, to have uh, uh, spare parts um, uh, to send to. Nowadays, you know, you, you go with UPS or something. It's quite it's quite fast, safe, yeah. but it's also expensive to have yeah. something, something sent after you. You know. Mm-hmm. But in the sixties, it was I got I got stuck in Australia. I, I, I worn out completely the tires, and I couldn't get any spare tires. What, so what did uh, you do? Yeah, what we did, you know, I mean, you can. Yeah, I'm a I'm I'm a tinkerer. You, know, I can, <laughs> you can you figure out something. Figure something figure out. Yeah. What what happened there was that um, the uh, I had tires twenty six by one seventy five. Okay. Yep. And, and the uh, the English measurement was uh, one three eighths of uh, twenty six and one three eighths, and I found out that uh, although the rim it wouldn't fit on the rim, but it would fit on top of my worn tire when I I. I the well, without air first, to push the English size tire over my own and then pump it up. <laughs> the, the English size tire were not sitting on my rim, yeah. they're just sitting uh, tightly on my old worn tire, you know. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't go down a mountain at like 50 miles an hour, you're probably with, okay. With double tires, there. The problem was 
when inside uh, the, uh, the the inner tire rubbed on the inside of the outer tire, and so the inside would would uh, would get damaged very quickly. Ah. And, and so I had to re- replace it a few times, but I managed the whole of Australia with it with two tires on top. That's insane. <laughs> there were not many mountains in Australia. Hey, come on, you know that, Christopher. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of desert. <laughs> they have some decent. A little mountain range somewhere, I think Victoria somewhere. Yeah, well, yeah, the the, um, uh, the Blue Mountains, or what they call the Blue Mountains there. Uh, and so, well, the highest mountain, uh, the Kosciuszkow, I think it's called, in the, I think it's about 2,000 meters or something, the highest yeah. one, you know. Yeah. See, but you don't really need to, well, you want to go there, you want to go in the mountains, you can also climb the mountains there, and why not, you know, but yeah. I'm not... I want to see the country, and I I do. Uh, I want to I want to go the, the mainstream. I want to go with the mainstream in the country. Nature, I have plenty. Mm. Uh, just it comes my way. I don't need to seek nature. I, I have it all yeah. the time. Yeah. I camp out. I, I I don't need it. So I need the the, the general life in a country. The people, me. the culture, yeah. The, the standard, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, the um, what you call the the, the straight. Uh, no, what do you call it? Uh, um, the the streamline, uh, the general stream of the country, and so that doesn't um, uh, doesn't um, uh, interest me to to prove that you can climb a mountain or something, you know, especially. So. Did your bike have a name? I, I believe I know the answer to that, but I thought uh, I'd ask. I call it the Klonka, the old Klonka. I, I just sometimes call it the old bike, you know, the, the original <laughs> bike. Or the original the, bike. <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah, because, uh, because later, well, the last few years, I went with the Brompton, of course, and, and, and I, I never have given names. So I'm not that... Uh, <laughs> I know that many people give names to their bikes, you know, like uh, Rosinante. <laughs> so many cyclists, they call their, their bike Rosinante, you know. <laughs> you know, but uh, Rosinante, you know the, you know the, uh, the story of, uh, of the Spanish uh, hero there with the, uh, the Don Quixote. Yes, Don Quixote, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the uh, horse of the Sancho Pancha of, of, of the, uh, of the, um, uh, what's the name of uh, Don Quixote, no? Yeah, <laughs> it was called uh, Rosinante. Ah, okay, I didn't know. People, because it's there, for them it was the horse, and for many it's the uh, bicycle, yeah, and so they yeah. call it the Rosinante, but I, I'm only laughing about it. I, see, I met two or three people, that say, what's the name of the bike? And they call it the Rosinante. <laughs> <laughs> I call my bike Nirvana because when I'm on it, it's like, I, I mean, like, you I'm want at peace. Uh, Nirvana is the end of line, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a nine. The ten, the ten reincarnations are over. That is what the uh, Buddhists uh, hope for. Nirvana is the, the final end. When, I know, and when, when I'm on my nothing. bike, I feel like I've achieved everything. <laughs> uh, poor guy, you do to, to call it Nirvana, but you will, you will end up in Nirvana a little bit earlier. <laughs> it's always possible as a cyclist on the road. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you cycling yourself? Yeah, a lot. Um, particularly what, what when the summer comes. You have you have uh, added it up the distance you have done. I've never. Um, a lot of my tours have been very short tours, um, like 
seven weeks in Indonesia, three, four, five days in different parts of Europe and Asia. You can look at the map and you can, which you did, and you can estimate the distance, you know. Yeah, well, last year. I have the distance for my first 10 years. Mm. They're not that accurate because I know the routes that I did yeah. and what I did on a bicycle, but I, I, I you know, you don't, in those days, you didn't have a computer, you know, and, and, and mm. so they did, there was a, a mileage counter, but it was uh, it was notorious for, for not functioning or, ah, yeah. or, or losing, you know, it was a little thing that was clicking on the on the spokes, on the, on, on the, on the central axle, the front mm-hmm. wheel, you know. Maybe you know, uh, how old are you? 42, soon. 41 uh, well, at the moment, but almost 42. You are, you are after the time when when there were different milometers on the bikes in those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, In the last two years, I cycled 15,000 kilometers. Uh, I know that. Uh, 10,000 two years ago, and then 5,000 last year. Uh, well, I mean... Um, uh, that is not bad because my record year, I mean, of course, I'm not uh, counting the mileage primarily, but my record year was uh, something like 22,000 kilometers. I know, I saw so you did some like awesome riding. 15, that's like 13,000 miles or something like that. You know, that was my best year. Mm-hmm. And there were only three or four years that were over 20,000 kilometers. And then it was like average would like be... Uh, 12, 13, 14,000. Mm-hmm. But it depended because sometimes I left the bike behind. You know, the, the yeah. Amazon, yeah. I did completely without the bike. The bike is not very useful in the Amazon. It was all on rivers and, uh, and partly hitchhiking, partly by, by little boats that go on the river, partly by mm-hmm. canoes. And, and so that was like some six months I spent time in the Amazon. Yeah. Well, and I'm also in Canada, so I only have about seven months, eight months of the year where I can actually ride a bike. <laughs> well, I, I met a Japanese. He insisted on taking the Trans-Canada Highway in the middle of winter. Some people are crazy. 40 to 50 degrees below zero. <laughs> If you want to, you can do it. I know, yeah. And I have a lot of friends that cycle outside in the winter. They they have fat bikes and they go riding in the woods. And I mean, there's lots yeah, of, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I know because uh, they are in the National Geographic. You sometimes have stories about uh, bike tours. Uh, and they had one on the... Uh, on the the, the the Continental Divide. I mean, actually, Continental Divide, there's a bike pass now. And a lot yeah. of cyclists do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's very famous. In, in fact, the people that uh, they always call me the bike, and uh, and uh, and they think I'm I'm part of them. I'm part of them. Did I mean the the uh, the athletes that that uh, are proud of doing a difficult route? You know? okay. so they, I'm considered part of them, but uh, in reality, I'm not. But but, but I tell you, now, recently um, people came up to me and uh, were so proud of having done the. The, the Trans Canada, the Pan American, the Continental yeah. Divide, and you name them, you know, those uh, exciting routes that are special routes these days, like the Carretera Austral in, in yeah. Chile. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, I went on once I, I it's not the first time I was as many times in South America, but the last time, or one of the last times I was, I, I started in Buenos Aires and I followed the, the Atlantic coast, up to Ushuaia, down to the south, to the uh, Terra del Fuego. And there was nobody on that route, you know, 3,000 kilometers. But when I was on the other side and came up, 
the, uh, the Karatera Austral. In one day, we would meet at least 10 to 15 psych- other cyclists that had to do the Karatera Austral. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so popular or now. The, or, the, or the famous route 40, the, the route number 40. You know, okay. which, which runs in the Patagonian side on the other side of the Andes, you know. Oh, yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm nothing, nothing against those routes. Lately, I've done the same because everybody says, oh, you got to do the end-to-end to, to end right in, in England. You know, everybody who is a good cyclist, he must have done uh, Lance end to John O'Groat. Yeah, you know, yeah. Proper, I, you know about that route. Yep, for sure. 900 miles or something like that. So uh, somebody wanted to do it for charity. And then <laughs> that's funny because every time I go, somebody says, you're riding around the world. You're riding it for charity. <laughs> yeah, I said, for my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they always, you, you got to do it. And then there's a guy I met in the Sahara once when he was on his honeymoon. And uh, and he was organizing a charity ride from Lance Center, John O'Groves, and he asked me to participate. Maybe they could make some extra publicity and get some more money, raising more money. And so I, I joined them. And so I did mm. the... Uh, the Lance and to John O'Groves in nine days or something. That's not a record, of course. Some people yeah, do it yeah. in a record time. I probably can do it in three or four days if you want to. You know, I mean, yeah. like uh, many of the things is uh, the best, the highest, the quickest, the fastest, the worst, you know. It's always the superlative that people are looking for. Yeah, I mean, they're looking for adventures and maybe they don't have a, you know, they, they, the way they're living their life, they don't have a 50 years well, on the road to a, do a it. So. time and they have a yeah, challenge. It's exactly. a challenge and yeah. I yeah. have nothing against it, but it's not, it's nothing at all what I do. Yeah, exactly. Um, can you tell me about your handlebars? I think you run like a, a very interesting handlebar setup on, on the old bike. Yeah, because that uh, makes sense. Is uh, is simply the position that you're riding in, and if you are riding in a country where you have no reason to to stop all the time because there are vast distances and mm-hmm. and you, you you want to cover it, you know that's only because because uh, you don't want to take a transport across uh, areas. And um, like in Australia, when I went I went around Australia, and mm-hmm. it was a lot of just cycling, yeah. and uh, so I. Would I wouldn't mind to cycle 14, 15 hours a day, and uh, just to make the distance. And so then your body will rebel, and they will tell me, hey, "You can't do that." Either your 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 Achilles in the in the back of the of the foot it mm-hmm. uh, started to hurt once, and in the shoulders, you know, with the, the, the same position all the time. Yeah, it's hard. So, so I I had to change my riding a position. Well, how to do it? You know, you have to get a, a complete different uh, different handlebar or something like. Oh, the racing handlebar, of course, is bad too. You know, because you're you're bowing down you too far. And you wanted to change the riding position, so you had to think about something. And I found a, a, a golf club on the side of the road. It's another story because I find a lot of things on the side of the mm-hmm. road, and I have a collection of all kinds of things that you can find. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm just really treasure hunting for me sometimes because I have eagle eyes and I, I spot every coin on the side of the road and I stop for it, you know. And yeah. so I stop for this. And I've always been thinking about how to change the riding position of a bicycle. And I found this golf club and this, uh, not the club, but the uh, the handle. I said, oh, man, this could be useful. So I have always a, 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 little, a little saw and things. 
I saw a part out of it and another part and another part and I, I attached some uh, some clamps on it on the bottom of the handlebars and I decided to make an, a double handlebar out of it. Oh, you know, wow. It wasn't such a good idea because it eventually you can't attach it that good to the, the handlebar that after some time it moved and it was even sometimes dangerous because okay. it suddenly moved yeah. and you, you lose your balance on it. You know, there was... Uh, but you could, and, yeah, you could change... I could change the, the riding position, you know. And then later... When in, in when I was um, there was in uh, in uh, in 1977 when I was first time back in Europe, and I, that I didn't I decided not to go back to Germany. I went around Germany like like a, the cat around a hot pot. You know, I never stopped, stepped on German soil. And then I decided in Holland, no, 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 I wasn't going to stop my journey in 1978 or 77. And and then I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to England. You know, and mm-hmm. in England. I sold my story in many, many big publications, and among them was the Sunday Times, which is one of the best papers in England. And they had my story, and when I was writing in England, everybody knew it, and everybody was invited in the shops. So there was a big, oh, wow. uh, Elton Square, in one of the big department stores, or they were called it the biggest one in England in those days. And so when I was in there, they recognized me right away. And one of the the, the, the sports shop took me in his shop and he said, look, take what you want. It's all free. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I said, no, I have everything. But, um, hey, listen, um, uh, I could have some um, some uh, expertise to change my writing position and uh, to make something. Pro-. And he said, oh, my father is working in a shipyard. And he stopped work right away. And we went into with the car to the shipyard. The whole shipyard stopped working. And, and they looked at the bike. And so they, 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 they got the material and they welded a double handlebar on it, you know. So oh, that's, wow, the okay. one that, that's the one you, you, you haven't seen it yet. I suppose you saw it on, on, the, on, on pictures. Yeah, I saw like pictures. That. Yeah. But it even became my, um, uh, what you call it, an, an R. You know, it's it's my um, my recognition sign. You know, yeah, everybody yeah. knows that I have a double handlebar. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I found out that that was that was a very disappointment. I found out when I was riding in the north of China that exactly what I had, they had on their um, their heavy load bicycles as well. Exactly what I had. Oh wow. Know? So they'd already yeah, been doing it. Cheating, they asked me, you cheat, you know, you, you took it from them. No, I said, they took it from me. But it was a development that, in my case, it just happened by by common sense, you know. But yeah. for, for them, maybe it was also a simple way to do, to, to have the different positions. You know? mm-hmm. So anyway, it turned out to be a very good thing. And, and, and not only that, because of many of the hills, with, with all the load, with 30, 40 kilograms of luggage, I would have to walk up most of the hills. And I had a funny way to do I could, could could rest my chest on the upper handlebar and then I swung my arms around the the backs in the front and I could almost sleep that way and walk up slowly ah. walk up the hill and I walked up every hill even if there are 5,000 meter high mountains you know high, high passes I made I eventually made them 
you know, that's what matters, you know, you know, and every, that, <laughs> the problem is when, when somebody pumping up the hill, he doesn't want to get down, but he has good gear so he can get up, but he doesn't see anything. You know, he's just looking in front Focused of the, on the front tire. <laughs> To the, to the to the to the pass, you know, he wants to get to the pass. Yeah. But the, the, what what doesn't make sense to me, you know? I says, okay, I push up a little bit, and then you look around, you know, on this. My God, yeah. oh, look at this flower on the side of the road. Oh, look at that there. Uh, you stop. You stop. I had the special kind of stand that I could. Uh, I don't. I didn't need to put the bike down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I put it up, and then I took the camera and I approached the insect or the flower or the whatever on the side of the road. I took some pictures, and by the time I put the camera back in my camera, and I was rested, and I could push yeah. on a little bit, you know. Eventually, the, some of the some of the mountain passes took me three days to get up to the top. Oh wow! I uh, Heinz, I also um, I know you had a bike Friday. I also have a bike Friday, uh, New World Tourist. I think you had a llama. Um, in northern Thailand, like you said, okay, I, was, okay. I would cycle um, yeah. up the mountains and I would just stop and take pictures and look around. Instead of focusing just on the road and getting up the mountain, I would, yeah, I took my time. I enjoyed it, you know, beautiful. Most people do that, you know, because yeah. it's a challenge. And they 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 look uh, they 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 look at the mountain as a challenge, uh, something mm-hmm. to be comp- com- look to be defeated. You know, from, from uh, you you defeat the mountain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's. <laughs> but I, I feel the same. But you would you would be completely exhausted and you dehydrated and you. I mean, in a hot tropical climate, you know, the, the, you you the whole body is. Clothing and everything—it's—it's it's, uh, pitch wet, you know. Yeah, I, I lived in Malaysia. I know what it's like. Yeah, it's wicked, yeah, wicked, Malaysia, very humid. Yeah. Yeah, well, damn, oh, most of the the, the, the jungle areas uh, along the equator or around the globe—it's—it's it's like that. You yeah, know? exactly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I think differently. I, I'm assuming throughout those. Uh, 40 or some odd years that you were using your old bike, a lot of parts were slowly changed off of it as things broke and got replaced. Is there anything left I, that's I, original? No, I actually decided, uh, since I decided always the same bike because it's one of the super luxury, I could tell the story better when I did, yeah, it's all done by the same bicycle, you know, so uh, I, at the end there was only a few parts originally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided that those parts had to stay. Ah. And so uh, everything that had been changed, of course, the wheels and the tires and the tubes yeah. and and all the things that move on the bike had been changed. But the frame and, and the carriers actually did because as a toolmaker, before I started, I made them solid from solid steel. They okay. had been like a like a like a lambos, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, you know, with all the luggage that I used to carry, you know, from forty to sixty kilograms, I had. If the bike is twenty or fifteen kilos, it makes hardly any difference, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, um, although I must admit that there 
is a limit. Sometimes you reach a limit, you know, and then you start to toss things away. Like when I was in Tibet and had this, all these long hills up, you know, and I looked at my equipment and I said, is this really, really necessary to have a big towel like that? And so I would cut the towel in two. I would say, that the second pair of shoes? No, I don't need a second mm-hmm. pair of shoes. So I hung them up on the neck tree and, and wished that the, the, the people who found it good luck with them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so to get up, but what, what, what did I save? Maybe two, three kilograms. Well, so, I, I find played. that almost everybody I interview and I've talked to, uh, the bike tours has slowly got rid of stuff that they realize they just don't need it yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. You know, they're like, Oh, I, I don't use it for a month. What's the point? You know, I just carry well, for nothing. You have, you have to, uh, well, you can overdo it, of course, and yeah. then you suffer. But uh, you you have to be very well. First of all, you have to get a, little by little. You get experience, and so when you when you look at a map and you look at the, the, the stretch you want to do, accordingly, you have to carry water. You, you I see some people they carry water unnecessarily in a city. The Japanese guy Nakas, Nakanishi was his name. He carried like five liters of water, even when he was riding in cities. Oh, it wasn't necessary, you know, not because really, in no. a city you can get water anytime. Mm-hmm. But when you have a long distance in front of you, and then you you will you'll see what what's the temperature? How far can I do I do I have to go without having a chance of getting water? Yeah. And accordingly, I have to put water, but it's always tightly um, uh, figured out how much you would yeah. need because you wouldn't want to have too much water because it's too heavy. Yeah, especially if going especially through somewhere like Death Valley the, or something, I guess. I crossed the Sahara, but there mm-hmm. was uh, 600 kilometers of sand and, and no water. So, <laughs> But fortunately, I mean, I learned quickly that at that time, the central route in Sahara was driven by people second-hand cars they wanted to sell to countries south of the Sahara oh, so they okay. came through the Sahara with their Peugeot's uh, 403 the most of them were and and so I was many times relying on they would always stop when they see me pushing the bike through the sand there and so sometimes I had even too much water with me with somebody coming through oh. with, with uh, Range Rovers and uh, four by fours. And, uh, and so they would stop and they say, I had to tank on the bike, which, uh, which would, would uh, carry 10 liters. But, but the 10 liters were too heavy already for me. And so I always had it only about half full or, or not even. Mm-hmm. And so they would say, hey, come on, fill it up. I said, ah, I have enough. I have enough. <laughs> no, you know, you never know. You fill it up. Come on. And so they gave, uh, they filled up the tank and uh, I stood there with 10 liters and I said hey, wait, this is not necessary so I took a shower in the middle of the Sahara you know <laughs> <laughs> and washed my clothing and when I was down to 5 liters I started there again I pushed a little further and what happened another 4x4 four four stopped and he said put, put the water in you never know <laughs> so sometimes I had too much water in the desert you know because the food I was so sorry for you when when you and sometimes some trucks they would force force fully what wanted to be I, they thought um, um, something must have been wrong with me uh, because they would force forcefully wanted to put me up on their truck to take me along and I would have to fight to say because normally it, it doesn't really matter but it, that particular route to Zahara because most of the people say yeah from Taman Rashid the next 600 kilometers you can't 
ride the bicycle oh, okay. all sand. So, and that, and I heard about an English guy, Martin Eves. He did it all on bicycle. And he a couple of times run short of water, but he did it on bike. So I said, at least that 600 kilometers, I have to do on a bicycle. Yeah, you know? if he can do it, as, I can do it. I put it. Not mine to put it on a truck and get, get through the unnecessary sand. It's not necessary to go through the sand, you know, but I did that. And so then I was so surprised that everybody stopped that that was driving through there, you know, and there was there were always these convoys of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, Peugeot's. Uh, and, and and they would have food. <laughs> they would give me food, you know, the, the chocolates and stuff of this Russian, the other rations that the Russians, Russians that, that yeah. how, do you, how do you call it? Russians, Ration yeah. Ration and yeah. um, uh, soldiers get uh, get food packages, you know. Yeah, yeah rations. Mm-hmm. They would eat the stuff that they would like, the chocolate and things was gone, but the rest they didn't want, they gave to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was where I, I didn't realize it, but I was, uh, it was, it was in, in fact, it was, uh, it was uh, peanuts to get through there. And were, were you able to ride a lot of it or you had to push most, a lot of uh, it? This was a very, I had to, as thick tires as I could. This was a mm-hmm. 26 by 2.15. And, but they I couldn't have them bigger because the frame would yeah, not allow, wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Yeah, and so those ones, uh, there were certain stretches where there were no, when there was a wheel of a car there, or the, the track, it uh, it was loose sand and I would, would fall off the bike. But it, in between, there were some stretches when they looked dark or when they looked light. Mm-hmm. At a certain color, I could uh, stop and get started and I would pedal furiously, maybe for two or three kilometers before I collapse again or I'll come <laughs> into a spot wow. where the bike would uh, would sink into the sand and I would fall off, you know, and then I would push again. And But uh, uh, but basically, I could make uh, 40, 50 kilometers a day. Okay. Did you ever have any... Um, I, I know your frame broke on quite a few different occasions throughout the years. Did you ever have any places where it broke down in the middle of nowhere where you're kind of stranded or anything like that? But every every break on the bicycle you could temporarily fix, you know. You have uh, you have brake cables. The brake cables you can toss around some, uh, I mean, I, I know with the, the, I think some of the pictures you probably saw mm-hmm. in the in the booklet where the the main frame just uh, in, the, in one uh, came broke into two so you put a stick in the middle and you force it together again and then you put the clamps on both sides and you, you connect them with cable cable um, uh, wire and then you put a, uh, a stick in between and you toss them together you know of course it's a wobbly but uh, i i went on couple of hundred kilometers before I finally uh-huh. found some place where where they could brace it you know you yeah. wouldn't want to well, you want to weld it electrically because it will break again very quickly you have to you have to uh, brace it with with brass mm-hmm. and then it would not happen again but uh, the bicycle every time you brace it it is about 200 grams heavier yeah. so i must have about a kilo and a half of, of, of <laughs> Raising material in my bike. Yeah, that's awesome. But it was just sort of a thing. I don't want another bike. I got to stick to this mm-hmm. one. And and it's just not a point. It's a bit heavier. Well, so what, you know? 
Yeah. And it's kind of like a broken, bo- it's like a broken bone. It never breaks in the same place again. I'm not, always- I'm not falling in love with it or something yeah. like that, but I mean, sure, it, 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 it eventually um, um, is a companion, somehow a companion mm-hmm. on where you trust it and, and you don't want any other thing. Of course, the later it was because of the airplanes. It was very difficult to get this heavy bike in an airplane and you couldn't box it, you couldn't take it apart. Uh, and so that was the time when I, when uh, somebody at uh, at teased um, me and said, "Well, yeah, well, we get a we get a bike ride. It's a bike ride. It's a it's a good bike." You know? I like it. Yeah. So I talked to the company and they they agreed to to give it um, at a very low price and uh, and and so they wanted to make some publicity. I flew to to Portland and then to Eugene where the company yeah. is and uh, they had the whole uh, television. Everything was there. Uh, and they said uh, the, the most traveled man in history on a bicycle will ride a will ride a bike Friday. Hey, <laughs> I still got pictures of it. Wow. And, and so I, I tested it, and uh, you know, I, some of the luggage was was somewhat differently packed. I, I already knew what was coming my way, and uh, so I already considered uh, a rucksack rather than the the kind of panniers. Although there were mm-hmm. panniers, because. The twenty wheel is high enough that you can put small panniers on yeah. the on the carriers. You know, in the front you have a hat. I, I don't know if you saw pictures when I was loaded up with the bike Friday. You know, and I cycled by fifty five thousand kilometers with the bike Friday. You know, for a number of years from two thousand four to two thousand ten, when uh, when the guy from Brompton came and he said, "Why don't you ride a Brompton?" You know, I was want more small wheels, so I'm quite happy with the bike Friday. Hey, listen, I, you know, we're going to get you some money, you know. Okay. And I said, "Well, <laughs> give me a lot of money. I, I don't care. I ride your your Brompton to the moon. You, know? you come, give me the money, you know." <laughs> and that's how I eventually changed. And I, and I said, "Look, I'm I'm going to to ride the Brompton, but, but only in good roads, you know." And so I was riding the bike Friday to to, uh, to Brazil and up to the middle of America, and then the Brompton was sent to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. And I changed it there. Yeah. The Friday was sent back to the company, and it's still there in the company, you know. Some people uh-huh. visited uh, the bike ride in Eugene, and they saw my bicycle in the lobby there. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I know the. I mean, it's a big difference, right? Sixteen inch to eighteen inch uh, to twenty inch wheels. It's it's a significant. It it doesn't seem like a lot, but I think if you go off road, it all of a sudden you realize a big how big a difference the two different wheel sizes makes. Yeah, well, you can get accustomed to just about everything, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I had uh, one time I did uh, on the Pino. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I saw company. you had a Hayes Pino. Yeah, that's a the tandem, isn't it? And they said, "Come on, uh, try our bike." You know, and I said, "Look, I wanted to do. They wanted to be publicity in, in the United States. They wanted to be, uh, and, and they, they have a very famous. It's a very expensive bike. It's a very good bike mm-hmm. uh, for many for for, for family like father in the back and then the younger person in the front. Yeah, you know, yeah, and." Yeah. Yeah, it was very good, like, but I, I said, oh, I, I always wanted to do, at that time already in my, my stage, it, it, I didn't mind to do famous routes, you know, mm-hmm. and I wasn't so much interested anymore in stopping long time in cities, and so I said, I want to do the Trans-Canada, and, and so they decided, okay, Trans-Canada is okay with us too, you know, and so they sent the bike to, to, uh, to Vancouver, okay. and uh, I changed uh, my, uh, 
Uh, no, I didn't even because I uh, this was this was organized when I was back in Europe, and so I flew to to um, to Vancouver, and, and uh, so then I, I started first. I started alone on the Pino, and I made a little a little detail, a little not just uh, straight away the Trans Canada Highway. I went up to Yellowknife, you know, that's uh, two thousand six hundred kilometers from Vancouver further north. Yeah, it's in the Yukon, or it was formerly called. Uh, the new white horse or yellow territories yeah called. northwest territories yeah, yeah. Uh, then i went down to uh, to uh, down again to uh, to edmund uh, to calgary and then i rejoined the uh, trans canada highway okay. you know? was, and then i was uh, there was a japanese girl with me for some time but uh, but i got rid of her because uh, <laughs> yeah, i was just putting more luggage on the bike you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, her weight as well, <laughs> because uh, anyway, then later there there was a Russian champion, uh, recumbent uh, kind of champion in Russia, and he was he was in, in touch with Haas, and he worked with Haas a little bit, and so he was sent from Haas to to Canada to to join me um, with him on the Pino for the remainder of five thousand kilometers or so, bis St. John's in Newfoundland. Yeah. So, and then the bike was sent back to the company, and and I hitchhiked back to Montreal, where I had to fly fly back to uh, to London, and then I got back to my my other bike again, you know. Okay, and what, at that it point, you were old. using the Brompton or your other it bike, was, the old bike? Well, they they didn't know that it was it was so expensive because they first thought they would they would just do the shipping and things like that, but not pay the whole journey. But in the end, it turned out that we have spent like four, four that was six thousand euros or something, and that was too much for them. And so they wanted to wanted me to repay some money for for some of the things that was not agreed upon. But they oh, were okay. supposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Uh, and I had to give up. To, I would have kept. Uh, I would have liked to keep the bike, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a something to show, because I always had in mind eventually um, after my journey, uh, you know, all the stuff mm-hmm. that I'd used and worn out or broken. I would like to keep. I would send it home yeah. either to my sister, or it would be stored for a while. And then uh, I was always hoping that that one day we would make a museum. With all the worn out stuff, yeah, and 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 the bicycle would have been nice there to have the the recumbent. Heinz, is the bike Friday? Will it be brought from Eugene uh, to the museum once that's uh, up and running? Or yeah, if the museum is, and I will insist on that, uh, and they might have uh, not anything against it if it's shown, mm-hmm. but the the, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 plan of the museum. It is, doesn't look so far as if there would be place for a lot of other things. You know, they have to make up their mind to make some essential. And my old bike is the essential thing. So yeah, and exactly. In, in all the other bikes, I, mean, I would insist of, of getting the Brompton there because Brompton has paid a lot of money since I rode the Brompton because mm-hmm. they paid the tickets around the world. They paid, uh, you know, every every time somebody, I finished one trip with the Brompton, they said, when I came back, says, and what next, where, where you go? I said, okay, <laughs> you want to pay again? <laughs> so I gave, them, I gave them two or three routes and uh, they could pick what they wanted. One route is 6,000, the other one is 4,000, the other one is 5,000. Okay. They would choose what, whatever they okay, what whatever route I, I I gave them proposals. You know yeah. what routes I would like to do with the with the Brompton. That's amazing. And it so happened that that the whole last 
from now, 2010 until now, it was uh, basically the Brompton all the time, mm-hmm. you know. So let me ask also the, um, I mean, the gear you used, you know, sleeping bags, tents and stuff. I mean, starting in the 1960s to 2000 and, you know, 2012, I mean, technology changed a lot. The advancements in the uh, quality of, uh, oh. stuff like, and they, and they get lighter, right? So how did, um, how did, how did that work with some of your gear that you had luggage, you know, that you had, uh, from the start to, to well, the end? Well, it was at one stage in uh, 1978 when I was, kind of the first time back in in Europe and when I was thinking about the Sahara crossing mm-hmm. I was looking for some new tent I had a really, really rag, worn out tent before which I had done a fly sheet of my own construction over it and it, I was just looking for something better okay. and I found a, a camping shop near the Buckingham Palace who had, who had um, a, 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 a tent that looked like price-wise okay and it looked about the, the weight and stuff that I wanted and I took it and I, it turned out to be it was an A-frame tent, you know. Okay. You know what an A-frame is? It's yeah. the pole in the middle and the pole yeah. in the back and mm-hmm. you stretch it out into sides of there. But it had a, had a fly sheet, a double, a double roof, which was which is quite important. And it was uh, well, 2.6 kilograms or something like that. And I used it and I liked it. And um, and ever since, uh, sort of, I uh, approached the, the company in Gosport, um, what was it called? Uh, Conquest, Conquest Tent or something like that, the company, you know. And, uh, and, and, and so I was, um, when I wore out tent, they would, um, they would, uh, or would pass them. That was a time when, when I'm regularly back in Europe mm-hmm. again. The first 14 years, I wasn't even in Europe, you know, so, so, and, and then, so they were either sent or I passed, uh, I made another trip to Gosport and they, they showed me around and I could get other equipment like good, uh, good uh, Gore-Tex stuff and, and it was all um, given then, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, so it was, um, and, and then at one time in the 90s in Hong Kong, I was eager to get an, a replacement for the Conquest tent. But uh, when I got in touch with the company by telephone, of course, from Hong Kong, the guy said, ah, we are run out of this and we haven't got stocks anymore of this stuff. And they wanted to to um, um, to um, uh, give me uh, another a name of another company. Blacks was another tent maker okay. in England. And I wasn't interested in it. And so at that time, I met some guy in Hong Kong who was also, he was a Hong Kong, but he he spoke good English and he had a, he had had a camping store which he failed and he was uh, some of the stuff in the camping store was was uh, was left over and he had a tent and it was a north face tent you know uh-huh, and, yeah. and he was interested in having my uh, worn out saddle you know I got the Brooks saddles and and mm-hmm. the bike shop in Hong Kong, you could get everything new there, and it may, the, the saddle was still usable. But he, this guy, was a, he, had to, he wanted something from the from the famous German cyclist, and he wanted okay. the worn out saddle, and I wanted a tent, you know. So we swapped it. Oh, nice! <laughs> and it was a North Face Westwind. Yeah, I don't know. You, maybe you know the model. I don't know the Westwind, but I, I know of North Face. Another yeah. tent. It's a, it's a tree. 
um, and the middle the middle one is the highest point and uh, it's a little bit lower in the front it's, uh, it's a tunnel tent and in the back is much lower and the roof goes double and, and I loved it and uh, ever since I wanted to keep that tent you know and I had a, a replacement once but uh, then they also stopped it you know and uh-huh. so uh, and so then uh, lately <laughs> that was funny because I saw it again um, the West Wind was a, a new version, a so-called improved version, was uh, again uh, available on the market. And I, uh, I found it in, uh, I was visiting a friend in Antwerp in Belgium, and uh, we went to a shop, and uh, he's, he, I said, oh my gosh, he's exactly what I, what I, what I like, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's improved version, and so let's buy it, and it was like 400 or something euro, it was mm-hmm. quite a lot, and, but he paid, you know, the guy, he was very generous, and he paid it, and, and then I tried it out, and I couldn't believe what I found, you know, they had simply changed the inner tent, used to have, uh, um, used to have uh, hoops, or loops, that you would, uh, would just put the, the, the tent poles through, yeah. and then you had the inner tent set up, and then you would throw the fly sheet over it and attach it to the ground, you know, and mm-hmm. attach it to the, and, and that's the way I had with the other one. And the new one had the poles through the fly sheet and not through the inner tent. Ah, so you had, you couldn't opt to not use the fly sheet. Because to get the hooks, and you had about 30 hooks in the inner tent, mm. and you had to put out the outer tent first, and then you got to lie down. And I got a, I got, I got a, um, um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, um, when you have a cramp in the leg, you know, when I tried to get yeah. the hooks in. And that was already shit, you know. <laughs> and and then I found out that you once you set it up in the morning, you want to toss the wet outer tent over away from the inner tent, and, and you couldn't m- maybe uh, shake it. So all the dew and all the stuff that accumulates, even the 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 the, um, uh, the, the sweat, you know, inside, you lose about one liter every night, yeah. and it goes through the inner tent and, and sits on the outer tent, and it's uh, it's 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 wet. In it's every every morning, almost the outer tent is wet, mm-hmm. and so you would want to throw it over branches or something to let it dry, and then you can continue packing up and things like that. But you couldn't do that anymore, do it, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to believe it, you know. It's, it's, it's all lying here, you know. It's all brand new, you know. It is. Yeah, I've never used it again. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just I looked up. Sometimes. I looked up the. Uh, I looked up the West Wind and the people in the comments here saying I have the original from 1980, awesome tent, blah blah blah. But it seems like the old one was the best one, huh? Well, presumably, I don't know. Well, there, there was one. <laughs> What I didn't like, they didn't have um, camouflage. They had bright colors because it was considered a mountaineering tent, you know. Ah, okay. And you want to see the, when you have trouble in the hills, in the mountains, you want to see the tent, you know. Yeah. So they had bright, bright, visible colors and they didn't have greenish color or uh, camouflage, you know. I don't know, if you look at some of my pictures, you will see that with a big marker, uh, I, I put, um, <laughs> put circles on the tent to, to try to make it um, darker, you know. <laughs> that, that happened with the yellow tent and it happened with the with the original blue tent yeah. bright blue and bright yellow that was the only two colors uh, you could get interesting 
that the only good thing on the on the one that I hated the last one that they re, restarted it was a dark green you know, the color was okay but that's about the only thing you know yeah wild anyway that uh, and then in between a couple of times I had uh, the uh, uh, the north face is a tender called the tadpole oh the tadpole yeah I know that one yeah it's lighter and smaller, and if it was sort of shorter travels or something, I tried it out, and it reasonably worked well. Yeah. And I guess once you were on like the Bike Friday and the Brompton, you had to, to you know, a little bit lighter, smaller stuff, less less stuff to pack type thing. Yeah, but I don't really no. consider the weight not important, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people, every gram. They they try to save on every gram, you know. Yep. But uh, many times uh, items are made from uh, from um, uh, what you call it the, the the artificial material. What do you call it? Polyester. Uh, or? I don't know, but there's a special name for it. Uh, sorry, it doesn't come to my mind just now. Uh, it's um, uh, it's lighter. It's it's strong. Uh, it's. Um, uh, the whole frames are made from it. Oh, carbon fiber? Carbon fiber. Yes. You said it. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you help me sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I got a little blackout. Please to help. My old brain. <laughs> my, my brain's getting older all the time, you know. <laughs> but I have uh, most of the time I, I uh, take my, my pen and a piece of paper and I write things down. Yeah. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roam the Tibetan Plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. I'm surrounded by... I must have built maybe 500,000 pages so far. Huh. I mean, yeah. like, and my diaries are like 18,000 pages of diaries, you know. Why don't you tell us about that? So you, you, you had, um, I mean, this is in the days well before computers, so you, you carried a notebook and you just made diaries that, you know. Everything is written by hand, everything, everything. everything. And then the, it's not easy in the tent, but I suppose it's not easy with a computer in a tent. Um, I, I always boycott it, and I, I still boycott it in, in principle. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes I can't get away from it. I hate it, but you. Yeah. But sometimes they force you to use it. I, right now, because I I get the orders for my books, you know. So, uh, 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have to do it because if I want to make money, you have to do it. You know? Yeah. And did you but, write uh, every day? I will have a lot of helpers who uh, who will come and uh, and and put things, uh, the cookies on the right place. Mm. And, and I can't, I can't, I can't, uh, I can do the most important things. My email, I look up and Google it when I need something and in information and stuff. I can do that, but that's about it, you know. And I watch the. Uh, um, the, the the news once a day, but uh, most of the time the computer stands there, probably only used for an hour or so a day. Mm. So, uh, I mean, like we talk about the phone now, <laughs> and other people make uh, the video conference, you know, <laughs> so he can yeah, see the guy. Yeah. Well, I, I'm actually calling you through the internet because it's a little bit cheaper than calling from my cell phone yeah, to Germany. Know, so I'm using Skype, but you know Skype. So, yeah. Yeah, but um, I should. Uh, I have a package to all. That was. It's, it's a bit of, of an, um, uh, a down now because I, uh, I have a, a package for for the landlines all over the world and I pay 39 euro a month you know mm -hmm. and it's free to all landlines but nobody has a landline anymore that's right <laughs> that is a problem you know and when I call I did that once with Australia and I was sure it was a landline because you can sometimes can see it on the number and I called and we talked about 10 minutes and then we started to talk about telephones and stuff like that and he said yeah he also had given up the landline and he has only a cell phone I said you got the cell phone but Bye bye. <laughs> and the bill was 15 euro, you know, oh, for no. that 10 minutes talk. Yeah, it can be and so, so expensive. That is, uh, and now I have that problem because many of the the addresses are coming for the, for the book because to check if they are paid or something, then I I would I could, could call them, but all of them only have a have a mobile phone now. Mm. Okay. Well, some of them have landlines, you know. In the United States, you can probably see it when it's a landline. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I know because my my parents they have a even their house phone now it's a it's online you know it's a it's not a real it's a digital yeah, thing but mine through is the internet too but it yeah. is still a landline oh it still counts as a landline okay I don't know yeah yeah, okay. yeah but I have a, a router okay it goes through the router otherwise yeah. I wouldn't have the computer yeah your computer has to be uh, I mean I'm still having um, having the landline but it is uh, it's all running. Uh, by as a router. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let me ask you. So in 1962, um, you you left uh, Hevelhof and started riding. What was uh, what was the destination? Like, where were you planning to go? Did well, you? Uh, well, basically, it was uh, um, Tokyo for the Olympics in 1964. But that was just to say something and sign okay. down something far away on the other side of the world. It's a good goal to say I'm riding to the Olympics yeah. so that would have been uh, two years after I started you know but it must have been a, a very uh, illusionary goal <laughs> because in 1964 I was only reaching Cape Town and I, I really rode pretty fast through Africa you, at that you time. went the wrong way Heinz and you I was were supposed to go, go from, east. <laughs> I was going to go to South America and then North America, and then I was going to go oh, to Tokyo. Okay. <laughs> and I arrived in Tokyo, but it wasn't in 1964. It was in 1971. I made it. You missed the Olympics. <laughs> uh, nah, yeah, but I mean, I, uh, I arrived to Tokyo in 71, and yeah. in 72, I saw the Olympics in Sapporo. Oh, well, how about that, huh? Yeah, the so winter So you didn't Olympics. make it to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So I did make it, but it was many, many years later. <laughs> so in South America, I slowed down because it was so great. All the German clubs and football, I could play with them. They had a German school there, and I was handed around, and, and I, I felt a bit like home, but I also um, I learned Spanish very quick, and, and so I was in, 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 in and, and I, there you always this big immigration or immigrant communities there, the Italians, the Spaniards, mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, the Germans are there, and many other nationalities too. But this there is many South, America. South America. In the north, you have more the mm-hmm. um, the English, uh, because it's colonial colonial times, so the English more go go to to other places where the, where the English were, but uh, the Germans didn't have many colonies, so they, the many of them went to South America. You know, be, before Hitler, somebody ran away from Hitler, and okay. the after Hitler, the, the, they run away from the change of Hitler. So they all back in South America, the the uh, the, the, the old Nazis and the, 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 the ones that run away from them. You know, but it, you know they have their communities and uh, and, I, and 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 as a German, you know, you, you immediately are uh, are handed around with them. You know. Okay. I learned that it wasn't necessary to to stay a day or two in Buenos Aires. You know, I was uh, I was definitely in every capital, and I, I made it a point to to every country. I went to the capital first, and I stayed three to four weeks there to get organized to uh, sell my story to the newspapers, to find the German uh, communities there, to go to the German schools to give presentations, oh. and to make uh, find a, a printer. They would print me the the book for free yeah. there and then I would hand them hand them out and I would make money that way and I would every time in a capital of South America I would have probably the money to, to travel around the country for three four months you know okay interesting Went that's a smart move country, I would do the, do the same every South American country even in Mexico it was possible only in the United States it didn't work that way anymore but in the United States they were so incredibly generous it was during a time in 1969-70 where the hippies were there and I wasn't a hippie I was straight I had no long hair I was on a bicycle and I was a straightforward normal guy you know yeah. and the the established community they walked up to me and shook my hands and they said oh hey, finally a nice clean cut guy you know our use is so shit you know and they had so many problems with with the with the flower children and the hippies mm-hmm. and those said, I don't know if you 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 were too young that's too, uh, I wasn't too to understand that yeah but I definitely benefited from it. There's incredible generosity there. Every day I had a, had a sign on my bicycle that could be read by speeding cars. It was big enough that they could see it was saying pedaling around the world and the German colors in there on a big sign in the back of the bike. And so they, every day, some car by after four, four o'clock maybe, I said, look, hey, uh, I'm waiting for the car to stop. And they see the brake light and then the hand coming out and stop, stop, stop. And it says, Uh, you're pedaling around the world, eh? You cross the ocean, how do you cross the ocean? Oh, God. Where do you sleep? You sleep in a tent. Oh, <laughs> the blacks will kill you you know you better come to us so you follow me or they want to put it uh, put it they have the big cars in there those they want to put the bike in the in the trunk but i would refuse and so they are oh, you says okay i'm 10 miles up the road and come and see see us and then you would say come to the house to them and they would say hey listen you would you know some good good american food 
No, yeah, I knew already what was coming, you know, because yeah, we will show you some barbecue, you know. Yeah. And there was T-bone steak and uh, baked potatoes and garlic bread and ooh, and I talked and I talked and I talked. I packed the paper on my food, you know. Yeah. <laughs> At about three o'clock in the morning, I was still talking. It doesn't matter if I made a hundred miles a day or so. I was, I was, I always boundless energy. And, and so, by three o'clock in the night, they would sometimes look at the watch and say, "Hey, we got to work tomorrow. You know, <laughs> we got, we got to go to bed." Is, and um, sometimes they would say, "Come on, make a day's rest." And they put the keys on the table and says, "Take your bike and have have a rest and, and um, make a spin around the country." They didn't even ask if I had a driver license or not. You know. They just presume in America, everybody presumes that everybody has a driver license, yeah. you know. And then they would go, and I would be, uh, be alone left in the house, you know. It's incredible. And it happened regularly. Every day I could almost predict it. When, uh, when my, maybe sometimes at 5 o'clock, nobody had come. I said, what, what state I'm here now? I have to wait until 5 o'clock until somebody stops and invites you in the house, you know. <laughs> <What> <laughs> Unbelievable, was... but it was true. But I was also willing, because I have a face that is willing to, to uh, go uh, with them with the people and, and that mm-hmm. uh, is my uh, my uh, um, benefit you know mm-hmm. so uh, later in later journeys it was different you know but still the group great generosity we would stop on petrol station or something somebody come up to you and put a ten dollar bill in your hand just without any reason but that also still happened later but I wasn't in the in the eighties. I wasn't regularly stopped on the road anymore. Okay. What uh, do you find? Was there one state or any any one state in particular in the U.S. that was uh, like the most generous? It was kind of everywhere at well, the time. There were some areas where they were more interested in the world. That would be New England. And I was also there during the uh, the, the colorful autumn colors and stuff like okay. that. So there, you you would be in uh, in more like in intellectual families, uh, where well also world problems would be discussed and stuff like that. There were lots of people from MIT that invited me in their houses. Okay. And, when the, the the MIT professor there, he was also like to ride bicycles, and so we went to Cape Cod. And we buy lobster, and, and we had a lobster dinner at home and stuff like that, you know. I mean, um, uh, but in general, yeah. When even the hippie times, in the, when I, I'm talking about the first first time in yep. the United States, about a year in 1970, 1969, 70, 71, and uh, even the hippies, I, w- I would not have any problems with. And they were the Jesus freaks, you know. Remember the Jesus freaks. You know, they would uh, would ride around, they had no money in their pocket, they would go to the petrol station, get petrol, and they would not pay for it. No. And they would say, God provides, you know. <laughs> and uh, they were nice people, you know, and they would pick you up. Yeah, we did a lot of hitchhiking there as well, because sometimes I get a news from my friend who was, uh, his sister had immigrated to Vancouver, and he was visiting, and I was in Houston. I left the, I left the bike with the salts handlers of Houston, and I hitchhiked up to 
Vancouver, oh, okay. and then back again, other things like that. I did, and uh, I mean that hitchhiking is also very interesting. You know, the kind of people you meet while while you uh, you know there there's somebody who is falling asleep, and you you're supposed to wake them up. <laughs> you have scary moments that way too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, or some some uh, conversion, uh, the people that want to convert you, you know, the, the religious people, they will pick you up, and they will take you to that church, and they will, they will, they will, ha- you will go and, and get a service with the Baptist, or what you name the different ones, the the uh, the adventure, uh, adventure, seven day adventures, so, yeah, you have many yeah, ones, many, Jehovah's Witnesses, many, 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 and uh, yeah. Uh, Get many different denominations, you know. So they would uh, take a bit to, to their service, and then somebody said, "Come on, go, go to front and uh, make a decision for Christ and stuff like that." You know. But he doesn't really. I mean, you're good people, but uh, but everybody sort of had a motivation why they would pick you up. You so, Heinz, uh, how many times have you been baptized? <laughs> Yeah, but I got uh, two boxes full of conversion attempts here. So if you come, <laughs> I will show you. Many Bibles are here, and many, uh, many uh, uh, manifestos, and you, you name it. You know, and, yeah. and flyers and stuff like. That. Somebody would just out the Seventh Day Adventists would just hand out flyers. You know. No, not the same. Sorry, the the witnesses of Jehovah. Jehovah's, yeah. I mean, even in even in two thousand and eight, when I was teaching and living in Korea, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses are there from the USA, handing out flyers, talking to everybody yeah, yeah. they can. Like that doesn't change. <laughs> they don't push, but they 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 got to do their duty, and that yeah, is handing yeah. out the flyer. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's their duty. If you don't pick it up, then you are the bad guy. But but their duty is to get the word of God to them, to you. You know what I mean? Yes, to spread the word of God, yeah. But that's sort of, I mean, uh, I never had any problems with them in that respect. But... uh, What was the the cost? Like, how how much did it cost to travel, like, daily... In the early oh, days, all the, all the people in Japan, I had uh, I had so much income because my book sold like crazy there, and so I could live uh, the fat life in 1971-72. These were really fat lives, you know. I could invite everybody. There were a lot of cyclists, or a lot of travelers there because Japan is so expensive, and and they they would really uh, have a hard time. They wouldn't want to leave because Japan is also an interesting country. So yeah. I would invite them and would uh, would spend dinner for them because I would make sometimes three, four hundred euro in one day. Holy by selling the booklet because yeah. it depends on the, I got a chain reaction there when I'm, when Japanese buys, everybody wants to buy. Yeah. So you hand them out, tack, 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 you know, it's incredible how many you can sell. One time in a weekend, I had about, I had about 2,000, more than $2,000 in one weekend, you know. And, yeah. and were they in English? Could people even read them? No, I had... <laughs> The first one was uh, was in no the first one I think was in black and white and in Japanese not in English and Japanese I think okay. but then the, the later one was it was clever to have a, an in Japanese and in English it took a little while before the, the for the for the translation but uh, but the the good thing was that uh, when I had the two to offer. <laughs> It was this the, the kind of the Japanese mind goes. They, they all speak some English, but mostly really poor English. Yeah, and so they would 
they would want to buy the English one just to read it in English. At the same time, they would like to have it in Japanese. So usually, I buy I sell two at the same. Oh uh, yeah, person. so they could compare it. Like so, they could try in English, <laughs> and then if they don't understand, they could read yeah, Japanese. You know, that's exactly it. They can, they can look at it both, and, and so that was a good idea to have both languages. Mm-hmm. You know, Smart. and also the uh, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, the uh, um, they would uh, yeah the price uh, it was sort of uh, and the psychological price you know you have uh, three hundred yen or you have four hundred yen for the book or the booklet and then uh, they would have only a, a, a suitable five hundred yen mm-hmm. um, piece yeah. or yeah. five hundred yen note mm-hmm. and they wouldn't want to change you know so this, the price looked pretty good but uh, because of of uh, having a bigger note, you would actually get the bigger note because they always refuse to take the change. You yeah, know? that's uh, that was uh, was and then some of them wanted to be generous, and it was very frequent that a five thousand yen, that's like forty dollars, was given for the booklet, wow. or maybe ten thousand. And one time, a two twenty twenty thousand yen, that was like almost two hundred dollars. You know, we was a guy. He was he was he was pulling a a watt of of ten thousand yen out of his pocket, and, and so he was just looking. You want to give me one? But actually, he said, oh, "Come on, can be generous." And he gave me two, two <laughs> times ten. So it was like two hundred dollars for one book. Of course, Fantastic. I gave him. I gave him ten booklets right away. He just said, "That's good. you can give them to your friends." You know. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it is where the fat years, you know. Did you? Uh, and I had enough money to to live uh-huh. uh, maybe six years with the money that I made in Japan. Yeah, you said that the money you made in Japan when uh, when I talked to you before on the phone, you said was enough for you to survive all the way through like s- Southeast yeah, Asia, yeah, Australia, I, everything, huh? Yeah, yeah. The South Pacific, I could do some trip around the South Pacific, which you would have otherwise been too expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I had also some bad luck and in. in, uh, in in Thailand, my my camera had, had bought an expensive camera in Japan, a Nikon F2, and uh, it was stolen there. And my passport was stolen and the stuff like that. I had to suddenly had to buy another camera again. And so in the beginning, I thought I could live on a dama. At that time, you got nine percent interest on your money, you know. And I had a lot of money, so I could almost live by the interest. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I would have been ideal if I could have waited a little bit longer. I would have made a little more money and would have put it on a fixed deposit. So you get, at that time, you got 9% interest on a fixed deposit. You couldn't get that money for a whole year, you know, but... Uh, but um, uh, but you could you, the interest you could get and the, with interest would have been an, enough uh, to live carefully with the interest. But of course it wasn't possible because you were robbed so many times mm-hmm. and you you bought some new stuff and then of course you were more arrogant and you wanted to see the islands in the Pacific and you had to buy tickets and stuff like that. so uh, so I you know you, of course you spent more because otherwise I probably wouldn't have seen the the South Pacific Islands you know. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Now, I I want to um, ask you, like, tr- cycling through uh, Africa in the 60s, what was that like? And I think, was it in the 60s when you met the Selassie? Yeah, 60, 63. So, yeah, okay, you hadn't actually been gone that many years at that point. It was still like, just a year. 
at that time, Africa, I thought, well, you've got to have an arm. I bought myself a gun there, you know, because the, the lion will the, the lion will catch you. But that was all bullshit. But anyway, you have the feeling in Africa, you know, it was like the time of the, the big hunters. And and uh, and animals were still, in, in, not in game parks, but, but just in ordinary roads. You yeah, everywhere. Find, yeah, they were everywhere, yeah. And and so, but that was not such a good idea because it only leads to complications more when you when you brand uh, when you brand a gun. If you if you uh, you can do that with with chasing dogs, you know, you can chase them away with a gun, but you don't do that if some people chase you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Children always chase you, but not in the 60s in, in Africa. They were completely different people at the time because there was a lot of lot of fear or respect for, for the white men because they were the rulers. They had the money, you know, mm-hmm. and so they uh, they had to be nice with them, the local people. Yeah. So you, but that has completely changed, you know. Now this is approaching you all the time and give me money and don't make a door, do that uh, yeah, on and again and again. And they asked me in, in remote villages to leave my bicycle there, uh, you know, because you can get another one when you're back home. No, but I need it now. They <laughs> <laughs> are opportunists in that respect, you know. We are, you know, we are the Santa Claus now in Africa. We bring the goodies. I heard that in Ethiopia, like nowadays, like it's very easy to have it's rocks thrown at you. In my time, it was completely different. Yeah. They were so scared even of me. You know, when I was suddenly appearing with my bicycle and, and people were walking on the side of the road, I see them dropping and they carry everything on their heads, of course. They dropped everything they had on their heads right in front of me and they were, they were running away in the forest, you know. <laughs> wow. Okay. Different world, huh? Yeah, but it was in remote areas of Ethiopia, for example, in mm-hmm. the south of Ethiopia, there were very few travelers in that days. And in the north of Kenya, it was dangerous because they were the, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, I don't know how to call them, the, uh, I forgot the name of Freedom the... Freedom fighters of some sort? The, 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 no, no, it's, uh, um, uh, um, uh, people were robbed on the road. You oh, know? okay. Yeah. And uh, at the border with northern Kenya, you could I couldn't go on because it was uh, it was extremely dangerous to go through there. And uh, and there was of course the war between the Ogaden was in, was in the sixties also existed there the Ethiopians and the uh, the Somalis you know. Okay. Yeah. The uh, the Ogaden was uh, has a, a, a war region for many 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 years. Sometimes it is, it's uh, it's 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 when uh, nobody else, no one over else in the world, some happening. Then suddenly, it focuses on that area again. There was huge, uh, huge uh, refugee camps, just millions of refugees. Sometimes on one side or on the other side, you know. Mm. And I was in in uh, northern in Somalia at the time when, as far as the eye could see, you had little huts where where people had escaped from the other side of the border, you know, from uh, the Ogaden on the on the side of. The Ethiopians, but it's also a um, ethnic uh, problem. It was because the the, the Ethiopians are a different um, background, and and then the Somalis, and, and so in the Ogaden mostly Somalis live, but the, the territory belongs to Ethiopia. 
So mm-hmm. you had this constant, what, the same what you have on border areas now, where some people decide to belong to another state, and but uh, but the war or, or history or colonialism has uh, drawn the line, and and mm-hmm. everybody says those lines are um, uh, must exist um, until somebody yeah. uh, something is changed. But but the, the, those lines are, are complete areas in Africa, uh, tribal areas are completely torn apart because of the colonial time and the borders that were drawn and have nothing to do with the kind of people that lived in those areas, yeah. you know. Well, even now, I think you look at the border for Ethiopia and Somalia and there's it's 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 not it's still a conflict border, right? It's still not conflict has been there for mm-hmm. many, many, many years. So where did you meet Selassie? Was that he, he was the ruler? No, it was just you uh, know, I had to uh, met somebody who uh, handed me around, and there was a newspaper, and then they handed me around in the in the parliament. Of course, the parliament was uh, appointed by the by the by the by the by the king of kings, mm-hmm. which is he's called the king of kings, and uh, and then uh, one of the guys he was a. Uh, he was a, a, a palace painter, and he painted the or he drew the Haile Selassie in my 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 souvenir book. You know, I had a souvenir book. You haven't seen it, but I have yeah. many many cards like that where I used to do that when I was traveling. That I gave them a card with address, name, a few words, a photo, and and so he drew the. the and then somebody else said, "Yeah, you must meet the emperor when some some great people come." to our country they are presented to him and he's very generous you know <laughs> so it was his 72nd birthday not that I was there at the time because all the ambassadors took their uh, their, their trip to the, to the palace and, and, and mm-hmm. but one guy he was interior minister so he was I was sent to him and he said look he's very busy now we'll come back tomorrow and then, then the next day I was in his office and then I was almost giving it up but I wasn't all that interested in it but uh, then uh, then he said you must come back tomorrow and about the third or fourth day in his office he just said okay let's go and he took me from his office across the 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 compound into the palace of the of the emperor, where he had his uh, daily um, uh, how do you call it his daily um, talk with uh, with his uh, his um, uh, his uh, underlings, you know. Where they were all lying on the road, on the on the floor, and kissing yeah. the ground, and uh, we marched to a, uh, um, um, uh, a as a, um, like uh, like you. Spiesroden, how do you call it, when uh, somebody runs and he uh, hit from both sides and you must, must be running quickly through there. And so until I was in front of where, where he stood, you know, he's about my size, he's only about 165 tall, you know. So he, I, I put him right straight in the eye and he spoke a few words of, of English and then it was translated and he handed over some, uh, some uh, uh, information to the minister of, I think the minister of Interior, when who took me there. Okay. And then it was this, and then they, they said that he, uh, um, uh, he gave me, uh, money, uh, so there was a sort of a document on, uh, on that, that was, uh, and I could take it, of course, and I could take, I took uh, foreign money out of, out of the bank, because otherwise you, you couldn't buy, uh, foreign money in the country, right, you know, right. because that's often the case with, with, uh, foreign, or a disease, and you can't buy it, you know, that's why you really, a country has a black market. When mm-hmm. people can't buy, 
money that they trust more than their own money. Oh, wow. That's just, and so I had the money, and that's when I bought a gun, you know, because I thought <laughs> that from here on, I come to really wild areas, and maybe I have to shoot my foot at this old bullshit, you know, because it yep. never happened. It happened that I had a couple of accidents with a gun. I almost shot somebody there, you yeah. know. So in in the <laughs> end, basically, Selassie bought you a gun. That's what you're saying? Well, because I, had, I wouldn't have had the money for the gun. You know? <laughs> that's wild. And you, you actually got shot in Africa, right? But that was, uh, you know, the, the Rhodesia at the time. They had two parties that were fighting against the white supremacy uh, government of Rhodesia at the time. South Rhodesia was called the name, and it, but it had resolved that the two parties that were trying to oust the Ian Smith regime was uh, Mugabe and his ZANU, something was the, the liberation force that they called it, and the mm-hmm. other one was Nkomo, with his ZAPU or ZANU, I don't know, either one of the two, and uh, uh, Mugabe, and there was then the, the English interfered, on, on, and uh, um, it was decided that elections should be held, and elections were held, and Mugabe won the election by quite a lot. Okay. And uh, so they were supposed to hand in their weapons the Nokomo men, but nobody hands in the weapons in Africa because you have a, have a if you have a Kalashnikov slung around your shoulder and you enter a bar, you can drink and eat for free. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's because you have the Kalashnikov around you and you have a few hand grenades bum, uh, banging, uh, hanging around your neck, you know. Right. And that's, uh, and, but they, they couldn't do that in Mugabe's land. So they went across the border and, uh, and terrorized uh, the, that part of uh, southern Zambia where the police had guns from the First World War. And no ammunition because Kaunda, one of those, uh, another one of those dictators of Africa, yep. he was afraid of his own armed people. So he had guns. They gave them guns, but no ammunition. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he was safe from a, a crew. Well, that's what I was told anyway. Yeah. And 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 so the uh, the ones with with uh, with really good equipment with Kalashnikovs and all the war stuff, uh, they, because the the, the the Rhodesians and South Africans were supporting the Rhodesians at the time, they had a a, a really uh, uh, well built military machine, you know. So they had to have very good good uh, equipment to to do anything against uh, such uh, um, uh, such counter such force of of the, of the government at the time because it was a was a was the fight against uh, you know, the the, uh, the white regime in in uh, South Rhodesia at the mm-hmm. time. You know, I don't know if you know the history there, but well, I think I I know I know the Rhodesia is like modern Zimbabwe, right? At the time, the elections had been held. Mugabe was in power. Nokomo's men ran across the border into Zambia and terrorized the area there. Okay. They had got, got everything. In fact, a little bit earlier, a couple of Australian journalists had been shot, I was told. One was killed. The other one had uh, uh, was badly injured, but he survived. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it was uh, the route 
that I came from from uh, Malawi at the time, uh, the new capital was called Lilongwe. The route was open and it was a good route on the way to Lusaka. And it was the route where they stopped me and they walked on the side of the road and somebody grabbed uh, my handlebar and it was just, I mean, so heavily loaded. So the, when the front swings around and uh, and you have not the, the front brake on, yep. uh, the, 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 the bike flips. Uh, uh, Lips and it fell to the ground, so I jumped off clear on the road and and he, I said, "What do you want?" He, punk. he shot my hand. He shot, he shot right in front of me. He could have hit me anywhere, mm-hmm. but he only hit my big toe. Oh shit! <laughs> so I was very happy because I could prove it because I can you can still see it that I was shot in the foot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they ripped my stuff apart, and then some people came by. They jeered, but I normally don't know because yeah. uh, they, they don't do because they're normally very friendly there. But they were jeering that uh, something happened. I was already stripped to my underpants by that time. And then another car came by and was a German guy who was working for the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, the Social Democrats. And he was there for, uh, for, for the unions, something with unions. And he was on, a, on his way to an appointment. And he, he knew the situation there. And he knew, and he heard, he heard me shouting. And he stopped briefly, but then he sped on. Uh-huh. But he went to the, the village, was only about five kilometers away. And he came back uh, with uh, his wife and children. He left in the village and they came back was a was a was a bunch of policemen, and so then the whole thing escalated there, and then the the the, the, the guerrillas or the Nkomos men said I was a military man from South Africa, you know, why on a bicycle? Come on! <laughs> <laughs> and so they everybody agreed to get back into the police station in Rufunza, was the place called, and so they, everything was looked at, my stuff, and then eventually, and my brochure it was really helpful there, you know, <laughs> telling my story. And I hadn't been in South Africa at the time; I'd coming from the North. Right. So there were many things against me being a, a mercenary man paid by the South African to uh, spy, you know, try to return uh, the power back to the uh, back to the, the white whites in South Africa, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, eventually uh, it was sort of decided that I was just a. a <laughs> A world traveler, and and suddenly these uh, the gorillas, four of them, disappeared in the bush. You know, they didn't say goodbye or anything. Suddenly they were not there anymore. And then the police said, "Look, you got to sign a piece of paper that it wasn't us. It was these people from Zimbabwe that um, did that, and we didn't do that. So they didn't want to be accused that they were involved in it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then the the German guy came back, and he uh, yeah he had been to his appointment. It took quite a while before my foot was looked at. And then, then the whole my whole luggage was looked at, and it was took about an hour or two before the the German guy and and his family came back, and then it was decided that I would go with him back to Lusaka, which is about 150 kilometers in distance. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bike was left behind. It was picked up another day, and I spent. And then my my foot infected from the from the from the wound, and it was uh, was treated again with some antibiotica, and then I, I spent about ten days in the house of this German guy, you know. And then I I felt enough good enough, and I cycled on, and I went on to the to the Victoria Falls, and then further into Botswana, and the journey continued at that time, you know. So okay, so you didn't go to Zimbabwe at that point, then, huh? Uh, mm, let me see. I went uh, from Lusaka to. Uh, to uh, to the, the uh, Victoria Fort is at the border of Zimbabwe. Oh yeah, it's at but, the border. Yeah, yeah. 
but it's not in in Zimbabwe. I didn't go into Zimbabwe okay. because because there you can go right into Botswana actually. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Gaborone and well, I don't know exactly because I spent that time. I spent a lot of time in Africa, three years in a row. You know. Oh wow! And back and forth, and and I mean that was in in April nineteen eighty, I think, when this happened. Oh, that's when I was born. <laughs> hey, you should have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Is that so? Uh, yeah, April 26. <laughs> then you will remember that time when it happened. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, many, many incidents and not nice and not so nice incidents happened, you know. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess in those days, South Africa was, uh, well, it must have been some different to, to cycle through South Africa. Huh? Well, South Africa was was always very advanced in, in uh, relation to any other place mm-hmm. in Africa, you know. It's functioning well. There are four million whites there that that the business and everything was run by them. Mm. I mean, the Africa were doing Africans were doing the work, but the the, the, the whites were doing that doing the uh, the development there. Yeah. You know, the yeah. money and everything, the knowledge and everything was was through the whites there. Yeah. The whites are not the whites in themselves because they are called the white Africans. You know, they are tribe. They are the tribes of the white tribe of Africa. They call them because they've been there for four hundred years, even before the blacks were there. The blacks that were there at the time, the Hottentots and things, they were wiped out. They were not there anymore. Oh, and then okay. the Bant- the Bantus over the Bantu tribes over a thousand years they moved to, from the west of Africa slowly and conquered the whole of Africa. But they hadn't reached the Cape at the time. They only reached the Fish River, which was all for a long time the border between the the whites in South Africa and the the Kosa. That's the tribe where, where Mandela came from. But there, there are many different ones. The Zulus, they were well established by that time. And they had a war machine that was almost invincible among the African tribes, you know. And they really uh, had a, an, uh, uh, a rule of incredible cruelty. Yeah. They had an army that was invincible. But until the white men came, of course, you know, because there's a big battle of the Blood River where, where about 10,000 Zulus were killed because they had to... They fought trekkers. They had these uh, these wagons, and they make a circle, and and and, and there were only about I know a couple of hundred whites with guns and everything, and they were attacked by forty thousand Zulu warriors that were, had, had ever never been defeated, right. and they were they were they were so uh, manipulated, and and, and they, uh, they would have been incredible. That's uh, uh, why they wouldn't have. They couldn't believe that they they couldn't storm the uh, the the Wagenburg, as they call it, uh, the, uh, with with the the wagons that they had there turned around, you know, and by about by about ten thousand dead they turned around and and, and 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 well they had other wars later, but that, that was the big big battle with the with the, the fortrekkers mm-hmm. that had crossed the former border at the Fish River and and, and tried to uh, go into the interior because it, at the time in the, around Cape Town it wasn't such a fertile land, you know, so it was was in other parts where more rain and more more interest and of course the, the colonialists eventually decided to stay there, but it was all during a time when where the um, where the, um, the 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 slow 
100 kilometers in 100 years. That's how blacks moved, uh, the Bantu tribes moved across Africa, but they had only reached at that time at the, at the, um, the river, the, uh, the, the Hottentots and the Bushmen. They had been pushed away by the, by the stronger Bantu tribes, you know. And they were done, finally, the only ones, the pygmies were left in the forest. The, 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 the Bushmen were left in the desert where, where nothing was to be found, but they were good hunters and they could live there. Mm-hmm. And they are, that's the, the area where the only ones are left over from that, from that other people in Africa. Oh, wow. Uh, what you call them, the, uh, yeah, but you call them the Bushmen, but, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Sana, what you call them, they're small and they have a different, uh, is it pygmies? Yeah, pygmies are in the, in the, they are also from that time, but, mm-hmm. but the one in living in the Kalahari. Oh, that was okay. Yeah. yeah there's a special name for them, but uh, sometimes nice films about them and they're, they're not, not sure people, you know, they are, they're, they know a lot of things about how to survive in, in uh, some difficult circumstances and very, very mm. good hunters. They had very little bows and arrows, you know, about a 50 centimeter long arrow, but they had a, such a poisonous uh, arrows that they could could kill elephants with a with a 20 centimeter little arrow, you know. Oh, wow. Um, Heinz, can I have one minute? I need to go to the washroom quickly. Uh, you are, uh, I'm so sorry for you. No. Nope. <laughs> I'll be back. I keep talking. <laughs> okay, you, you can keep talking and it's recording. <laughs> I'm back. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> yes, it was just a, just a tinkle. <laughs> I have a little bit of, uh, I've been thinking about things. I'm always thinking about my the aspects of my journey. So I have about, about roots, about money, about the bicycle, about health, about being alone, about photography, about camping, about women, about communication and language, about dogs and kids, both chase you about animal encounters, about items found on roadsides, about what makes me tick, about keeping track of it all, about stupid things I did, about dreams, about road kills and stuff like that. So it's, uh, uh, did you pick any of them and I can read you my answers to them? <laughs> I forgot all the things you just said. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I'm more than happy to uh, to record again later, like to continue on the conversation and make it uh, more than one episode, you know, uh, for sure, because I think you have so much to share. But yeah, let's talk about one of those things. What a, I think root was one of them. Let's talk about your root. My, my root? Yeah, that's not, that's that's just the beginning, my God. Okay, I'll tell you <laughs> that. It's very short, about uh, just a few slogans, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, looking at maps for hours and days on end. Two, by famous names of places. I mean, to, why have about who's chosen? You know, remember that. That's yeah. the that's the number three by guidebooks, but less and less because of commercial overkill. Number four by tips from locals, but here I'm very skeptical. Number five. Since late 80s, routes were chosen mostly by places not seen. Number six, routes were also chosen by, can I do a loop in a country? Can I zigzag around or enter from one side and continue from the other? Okay. Number seven, other consideration. Do I need a visa and how much time will it allow? Does the visa restrict areas or movements? Number eight, 
Do I wish to sell my brochures? Knowledge of the language helps for a quicker understanding of the country, but it is dangerous if you speak your mind. Once landed me six days in prison. Number nine, generally I'm not interested in becoming a specialist of a country. After three months in a medium-sized country, it is time to move on. Number 10, lately missing remote areas can only be visited or not with money in my pocket. More than I ever needed before. I also shun top sites now because of commercial overkill. Outfitters, fences, fees. Rare the chance of encountering the French under the Eiffel Tower. So that's where the 10 points of about choosing. Let's talk about the commercialization because I think that's that's a really interesting topic because, I mean, it's so true. Like from when you started... You stay away from it. You know, it's very simple. In 1962, it wasn't really commercial, right? There weren't that many people gallivanting all over the world. Now, yeah. everywhere you go, it's full of tourists, whether they're Westerners, Chinese, or wherever, right? Like, Yeah, but I mean, I mean, you, 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 the, the good thing on a bicycle, you get away from the main spots very yeah. quickly. And I mean, that's what I said to you under the Eiffel Tower. You, you will not see a Frenchman. You only see anybody else, but not the Frenchman. But you go 500 yards to the, to the south of it and you will only see Frenchmen. That's you know? so true. Yeah. And more and more people I meet, they say that they avoid the, you know, they don't like to go to too many museums and they don't like to hit the, up all the tourist sites. And Museums is another story, but to the, the main sites, you also have to see it, of course, you know. That's why, you know, you can't, uh, you can't uh, uh, visit Paris and stay there for a month without seeing the, the Eiffel Tower, you know. <laughs> for sure. And, and I guess that plays into, like you said, with guidebooks, right? Because guidebooks have become really popular, but they always well, kind of point you to the same places, you know. As a lonely planet. I mean, it's uh, not bad to go for, get a general overlook of the country from uh, the lonely planet people. But uh, and it may be some kind of guidance in your mind. And but uh, whenever I approach a city where I don't know anything, the, the Lonely Planet will tell you where to go. But when I enter a city with a bicycle, mm -hmm. you just uh, have a go at any first place you want to stay. You know, the first little hotel you see, you ask um, uh, if you have a place and how much it costs, and then you find out the room is great and. Uh, price is low and you stay there yeah and only later you look at the lonely planet and you haven't said okay you want to you want to see some of your of your fellow travelers you have a look at what uh, what the lonely planet has said and you <laughs> find right. other people there but you stay in that place that you took when you first entered the city you know and you yeah. had to go at it you know so probably that you stayed in a place that was cheaper than anything that uh, that she so so-called cheap places in the lonely planet mm -hmm. approach uh, yeah. uh, told Go to, you know. And that's a good point because like in my experience traveling too, um, I mean, I backpacked around a lot of lots of countries and stuff was that, you know, when something gets input into Lonely Planet, oftentimes this authentic restaurant that was, uh, you know, amazing local food. Well, yeah. two or three years after it's in Lonely Planet, now it's catered to Westerners. So it's no longer spicy. It's no longer as delicious. It's just yeah, I know, food, I know. you know, it's, it loses that thing that made it special in the first place. Yeah, and of course there is, when it when uh, the story comes out from the Lonely Planet, it's about two years in the making, you know. Yeah, if you want good Thai food, you don't necessarily go to where Lonely Planet recommends because they're going to make it for foreigners, which will not be spicy, which will not, you know. 
still some information you need before you come to a country, and it's a good thing just to have um, uh, to have uh, an, an idea from country uh, but uh, what mm-hmm. you what you but then you 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 find your own way you know yeah yeah exactly that's a really good point and sometimes you run across other people you like to see other people and i mean for me information was often was often uh, um, received to, to the meeting of other travelers mm-hmm. in, the, the, in the way you in which direction you are going they are coming from where you want to go true and so they warn you about this or that you know and so it is quite helpful uh, when you when you speak to to travelers that come from where you want to go, you know? mm-hmm. so in the early days of your travels, did you did you meet a lot of? Like, I mean, I assume you didn't meet a lot, but did you meet other bike tours? Yeah, bikers were also there, but but quite uh, you would never kind of right in the same direction you will meet them coming your way maybe one a month or so will come your way you know and while you are riding and you riding south and he riding north you know so you stop and if it's uh, afternoon or so you may decide that uh, let's camp together somewhere okay. you know most of the time they have a tent some of them i mean uh, in my statistics you, you probably have read that about only about 30 percent of of these 18,000 days are spent in a tent. You know, yeah, and I did see that. In invitation in houses and about 30% in cheap cheap accommodation, you know. So, And the rest is uh, and even all kinds of places you could think of uh, where you can put your head down when night falls, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you mentioned in your route, routes, um, you said that whether to do a loop or point to point, I guess it really depends from where you were traveling, right? Like you, you made a home base in uh, in Taiwan, I believe, uh, for quite a bit of time. Yeah, in Taiwan, I went at I went different times, you know, because uh, well, eventually I had to leave Japan. I only get about a, an easy. My the Germans got a very good stay in, in Japan at just six months without mm-hmm. any any problem, and then you could could prolong, prolong it for another six months. Or you went out to um, to most of the people go out to Korea and then go back to Japan because okay. a lot of people are working in Japan and teaching or something like that. You know, they and um, I was just traveling there and I was selling my booklets. You know, so so I was interested in uh, and I had a lot. My got my book is full with, with Japanese addresses and they also are very kind and and and, and wanted to stay in contact. You know, so. Uh, and then, so then, uh, eventually, I had to move on, and so I decided that I would go to uh, after a trip in Korea. I would go from there down to to Taiwan, you know, and, and mm-hmm. then into then from Taiwan uh, um, to Hong Kong, and I want to go into China, but it was impossible to during that time to go into China in the seventies, in nineteen seventy two, when I spent uh, maybe uh, six weeks or so in Taiwan, oh. and, um, and, and and so then I from Hong Kong out. Well, uh, yeah, and I had the money from Japan, so if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, um, tight money-wise, and I, pro- I pro- uh, uh, applied for the visa for Australia, and you had to prove that you have, you're, you're, if you want to be a tourist there, you can, you could get easily an, an immigration visa if you wanted to immigrate, but if you were a tourist there, you could not ask for immigration while you were in Australia. You had to go back again, and once you were oh. there as a tourist. They wouldn't give you. They wouldn't consider you as an immigrant, you know. Right. So you had to show some money uh, to be um, uh, to get the 
the, the normal visa, the tourist visa, but I had enough money to show, so it was no problem to get the visa for Australia. And then I looked around and I finally found a ship, a Swedish ship that was uh, going to Australia. And so I went on a, a 10 day ship, ship journey to Sydney, you know. And then 73, I spent uh, seven months in Australia, cycling all around to about 12,000 kilometers around, around Australia. And um, and I met some really nice people, and they are still my contacts now. The both of them, both of the uh, uh, Louisa and uh, John, they both of them died now. Oh wow. of them. And, uh, and and so then uh, and then there was still enough money that when I left, I would uh, would got it on New Zealand first, and there was a ship to New Zealand, and then I went to the South Pacific Islands, and and so eventually uh, Papua New Guinea, and then uh, some of the Indonesian islands, and then I was back in Melbourne again with my friends. Uh, uh, to pick up some stuff that I left earlier there, and then I went back up into Darwin, and then I went right into Indonesia and slowly, slowly moved up. And I was pretty sick in Indonesia, you know, like um, um, uh, diarrhea for a whole month. I, I was, you know, you, you get that in the tropics quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And in Singapore, I spent a year, I uh, spent a day, uh, I spent a month about to get better, and then I up to Malaysian Peninsula, slowly, slowly up to, by 75, I was 74, then 75, I was back in Thailand, I went all, yeah, and then Indonesia into China, uh, back and forth, and and in my, I still, the money was all still there, you know, so wow. little by little, I, I withdrew money that I'd sent back home. Uh, when I lived in Malaysia, I talked to some teachers and they told me that like in the north of Malaysia where I lived in Kelantan, even in the 1970s, there were like communist guerrillas and they would have to close the highway in the, at nighttime so for, for travelers to be safe. Yes. Yes, I know that, but uh, uh, sometimes it, uh, it it blows up for a, for for a few things, but it didn't really involve mm -hmm. being uh, being restricted in movements there. Oh, in certain areas, probably in the Cameroon Highlands or in the interior, there's a new highway now between between the the, the one coast and the other coast to Kotabaru. Yeah, that's where and, I live. There's a new big highway too there. I mean, it was during that time. Highway I mean, 4, when, yeah. I mean, you just get the highways long since there. Yeah. But in my time, during my time earlier, it was very difficult to move across the island. You could go by train through the middle of the of Malaysian peninsula, up to Kotabao. You started from from the west coast. Then mm -hmm. Pagan, uh, Penang, the Penang, of yeah, course, from I Penang. spent some time mm -hmm. there as well, you know. Yeah. But... Uh, well, it was back and forth in Indochina and Indonesia and India and uh, back in uh, 76, uh, 75, I went to many, much uh, mountain climbing, uh, trekking in uh, Nepal to mm. Everest to uh, Annapurna to uh, Tangang, Tang uh, many of the things that you can easily do from base camp in, uh, in, in, in Kathmandu, you know. Okay. So little by little, I moved west. 
and then it was the big accident I had in Iran. I moved to Afghanistan, came first. I spent about three months in Afghanistan. I did really difficult route right through the center of Afghanistan. What year was that? In 76. No cars were going through there anymore because there were no bridges over the big river, the Hari route. My bike, <laughs> one time I tried to cross the river by bike and then I swept away because, uh, you know, I wasn't trusted. The locals were standing there and they were laughing. And they, they offered their service, but they wanted money for it, you know. So they started way up the river, about 200, 300 meters further up. And and then uh, they knew a, a, a law, all it's still reached to, to their armpits, you know, when they moved with my bike on top and other stuff. And eventually I followed them on the same route to, to cross the river, you know, oh, wow, because they, okay. The road on the one river was finished, and there was no bridges there. And then the famous, uh, the famous, uh, um, the, the monument there, the tower, the uh, uh, what's the name of the, uh, the the minaret of Jam. It was only discovered by uh, 14th century or something. It was only only discovered for the Westerners until very recently. You know, okay. in the middle of the mountains. You you can keep it in mind and, and Google it and you find all, all about all out about it you know and so eventually I came out in the in the western Herat and crossed the border into Iran and then I was in a hurry to get some letters because I got them post and I left my bike in Meshet and got my letters and on the way back I had to front a crash. On a, on a driver, the driver he picked me up. He was a youngster, his father's car. Yep. He was in the military. He was going to back back to his cousin, uh, who his, uh, his, uh, uh, where his training was, and um, not that wasn't so much his fault. It was it was just his driving style. You know, he was very fast. He drives so curves. fast. Huh? Yeah, you know, and and, and unfortunately, um, from the other side of the curve, somebody wanted to to move from his side to the other side where there was a lay-by area and we came around the car and we crashed right into him and he was a police car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was about 10 days in hospital and it looked pretty bad at the moment. It was like that was the end of my journey, you know. But, yeah. uh, but I mean, uh, fortunately, in, in the hospital wasn't a bad one because there was very nice uh, nurses that served me very nice. I was, uh, I was the... Uh, um, uh, the, the middle point in the hotel for the, 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 a German guy you know, was treated once had a bad accident. The first two days, the policeman and his son in the car, they were in beds next to me, but they have their own hospitals and he was transferred back to Tehran. Okay. And I was staying in Gonbad in the hospital. There was the, the guy who, who sewed up my head wounds. Uh, he did that without anesthetic, you know. And each time uh, the needle was going through my, 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 um, uh, my um, uh, uh, above the eye, you know, where the where the the wounds were, and he was telling stories about Bielefeld, where he he had been training as a as a as a doctor, and he spoke German, you know. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> That's uh, so. Then I went on, and then I met these people in in Tehran. You know, they they were in the in the big business with uh, the the Hoechst and the, and the, the the commercials like the uh, like um, um, uh, B R S F, and uh, and I was invited by them, and I stayed with them. And the, the chief of the the chamber of commerce, uh, he really took me under his. 
and and his protection and he called all the big companies to to sponsor me and they they say oh yeah let him come by and so I just visited Mercedes and Hertz and all the big companies and, and they at the entrance they already had an envelope and in every envelope a couple of hundred euros in I mean, yeah. not euro but whatever the local money was there you know and then one guy he, he came he just arrived and he took me into his house yeah they rented a house a house renting there it was ten thousand, ten thousand dollars a month rent. You know, at that time, yeah, wow. But the most expensive city in the world, everybody said. Yeah. Two years later, the Ayatollah came. You know, and they all had to leave. Mm-hmm. And one guy, he went out. The, the, the other was Mr. House. He had uh, his wife came, and uh, she had a very young child and uh, another daughter. She was about eight or so. And um, and uh, just recently, I heard one someone the, on the computer. Um, she said, "Look." Uh, you and my father, I, I lived the whole life with with your story. My father told me your story all the time. <laughs> and after he was seven years in, in always with the same company in in, Iran, in, uh, in, um, in, in Nigeria. And then okay. he was 25 years in Saudi Arabia, you know. Yeah. And then he went back in pension in Germany, in the, the city of Spire. And, and that's where the daughter, she was now 30 years old, married. And she called me and she said, look, my father told me the whole life. I know your story. All, every time he told the story over and over and over again. That's amazing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so she wanted the book and she wanted to give him, she said he was 78 now and he was not in the best of conditions. So, but anyway, yeah. so this is suddenly the, the history catches up with me again. And so the journey continued, and then little by little, I went to the first little trips around, around the um, the, the Gulf states in, in um, um, uh, Qatar and mm-hmm. um, and Bahrain, and um, I just I flew there. You got at that time you got ninety six hours or seventy eight hours, uh, and you had to leave your passport at the uh, at the airport. You oh know, wow! Then, okay. Yeah, this was the only way in those days that you could get into these countries, you know. But so I, I made a, a round trip by airplane. And yeah, little by little, in 76, 77, I came this first time back to Europe. And then I tell you the story about 78. I began in England. Yeah, you know, we catch up with, with the stories that I told you before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's it. And what other, what other aspects you want to hear? Uh, let me see. Let me see. Choose for you. Yeah, choose a, choose an aspect. I, I feel like it's not so much an interview. I think you have just an amazing story to share, and I'm just here listening to it before everybody else. <laughs> About health. Number one, rear view mirror to see the killer trucks coming. Best Medicare, a regular 100 kilometer cycling days. <laughs> Number three, important mosquito net. Or tend to fend off biting insects. Number four, tropical antibacterial to keep infections under control. Number five, broad spectrum antibiotics for for more serious cases. Number six, iodine to sterilize dubious water supplies. Number seven, salt tablets or rehydration tablets in hot, humid climates. Mm-hmm. Number eight. Anti-malaria taps in endemic places. I take them rarely now. Number nine, anti 
viral cream for my hypersimplex complex. Number 10, painkiller for toothache or other ache. It doesn't usually work for headache. Number 11, vitamin C to help get rid of the flu. Mm. Number 12, Vaseline or body oil for periodic body rub down. Number 13, aspirin to give to the locals. Number 14, condoms just in case a local girl wants to rape you. <laughs> <laughs> about being alone. Hold on, Never hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so let me, let's talk about this. I know you, uh, you, you are diehard about your rear view mirror. So tell us uh, how important that is to you. It saves your life. The hand won't save your life. The rear view mirror will save your life. And you see what's coming and you see what the intention is or if the guy sleeps or, or he's, uh, he's an erratic uh, driver and you get off the road in the last moment. Yeah. I, I know a number of famous world cyclists that have died on this road because I've never seen any of them having a rear view mirror. That's a good point. Maybe, so are you saying I should get a rear view mirror, sir? Famous Ian Hibble, must have heard of an English guy. He traveled many, many years around mm -hmm. the world. In 74 in Greece, he was killed by a truck. It was very famous um, uh, thing. You know, he's on the side of the road. He's, he cannot easily leave the road because sometimes it's really bad, the, uh, the side of the road. Yeah. A truck from behind. His truck is overtaking his, uh, his the truck and, uh, and another truck's coming from the front. Oh. And it's through two lanes. And so what happened is the, the overtaking truck had to move very quickly into line again, not to press with the oncoming truck. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Martin was there with his bicycle. Yeah. And he was killed. Yeah. And if you're a big truck, you're going to you're going to hit the person before you do a head on with the big truck. You know, so that's that's. Yeah. You no, to. because you see what is what is approaching. You know it when the the, the car behind and the car the car the truck behind mm. is overtaken by another truck. Yeah, and you're in the way. They can't stop. They are going seventy miles an hour. They got forty tons on them. Mm -hmm. You can't. They will. There's a kind of a honk that they have, and when you hear that kind of honk, you know you have to move off the road. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter if you have the right to be on the road, you are dead. That's true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah I don't uh, I, I don't always I, I have used a mirror, but I, I had one for my helmet and I didn't like it. No, the, the helmet ones are shit. No, it's not. I, it's a big, a big rearview mirror, a big one. And it's not a wide angle one. You must have a uh, a, a V for wide angle. It has to be a very very slight angle because you have to have to judge the distance. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's I mean, uh, just recently a couple of English uh, a couple on the honeymoon from Jersey as the island in the Channel. You know, yeah. Okay. I yep. came the way in 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 in, uh, um, in Thailand. And uh, people were coming my way, and another cyclist also, and he said, look, these two people have been just wiped off the road, and both are killed, you know. And and it was one of the typical things that uh, some guy behind him, or whatever, he might might have had a case or some problem, but you could have seen it. Mm -hmm. If they had a mirror, they could have seen it, you know. Mm, but they point. were just wiped off the road, and both of them died. Yeah. 
and I, I know the situation and I I have in an emergency had to move very quickly off the road. Mm. Otherwise, uh, you know, in Mexico sometimes, and unfortunately, some of the edges of the road are awful, you know. Yeah. You may you may wind right up in a, in a ditch because uh, the break-off is sometimes so abrupt, maybe 20 centimeters at the end of the asphalt, and it goes straight into the dust, you know. I don't know how, you, how much experience you have with that, but uh, there was one right route in in Mexico once where it was absolutely dangerous, you know. Mm-hmm. But you, you can, if you have a good mirror, look, you can judge exactly where the two vehicles, if they will meet at your place, or will the one behind you be earlier and overtaking you, or will the one from the front be quicker? Mm-hmm. And you can judge it. Yeah. So you can stay almost all the time. You can stay on the pavement. Yeah, that's true. Except, except when you get an emergency honk from behind. The guy is not going to stop. You got to get off the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to believe it, but I, I'm, I'm alive. I would not be alive. I tell you that. Yeah. What about helmets? Do you wear a helmet? The helmet won't save your life. The helmet only gives you a headache. <laughs> but that's why you have aspirin. Now they give you a headache because the police uh, in in Australia, in the middle of nowhere, listen, that's a joke, but it is not a joke. It wasn't a joke. In the middle of nowhere, 46 degrees, really hot. Mm -hmm. And it it was the hottest place in Australia. It's called the place called Cloncarry. You know, I came to Cloncarry in the middle of the day, shit hot, you know. But there is a supermarket. And in the supermarket had an um, 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 as a little place in the front where you could buy your cool drink and it was aircon there. Ah, okay. And you can sit there and drink. And I sat there for an hour and it was still very blistering sun outside. But you can't sit there forever. So after about two hours, I said, oh, look, I'm going to get my beer. And I'm going to get across the road and look for the pup, you know. And I I got on my bike, drive into the blistering sun. You know what happened? That air called cop's car pulled up with me. And he shouted, put your helmet on. <laughs> I said, I looked at him. Hey, you must be joking. Why don't you say, welcome to Cloncarry? <laughs> Come to my office. Yeah, and I was really, I could have said, uh, sorry, so, sorry, uh, officer, I'm, I'm just going to get across the road, you know, and get my beer or whatever, you know, yeah, but I was so pissed off with it that I, I, I couldn't accept that kind of behavior, you know, so mm-hmm. he took me to the office and he fined me 30 Australian dollars, you know. <laughs> so in Canada, you don't have to wear a helmet, only if you're over 18, helmet. it's your choice. I had a helmet only as demonstration. I would not have. I would not wear the helmet, but it was hanging on the back of my bike, you know. Mm. And it wasn't a normal helmet, a bicycle helmet. It was one of those building side helmets which are found on the side of the road. <laughs> I find everything on the side of the road, you know. Yeah. Everything you need lies there. What are some of your greatest treasures from the side of the road? Well, I, saw, I found the biggest note I ever found in, uh, in Tahiti was uh, 10,000 uh, uh, Pacific franc which was about 80 US dollar. Oh, wow. Okay. I was so happy that I went to the next office and I bought a ticket to East Island. Oh, okay. <laughs> I flew 4,000 kilometers to East Island and back again to Tahiti. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
much that much um, enthusiasm and that much push I found with with founding that kind of money. You know, I had been thinking about that because they had a very good price because it was a sort of a for Chilean airline. It was uh, not very full up that stretch. You know, the most of them would either go only to the East Island and then back to to Chile, or they would they would only go to uh, some of them would only go to to Tahiti where Chilean Airlines stopped and then you would have to change to another airline and then the way back and that stretch was was not full full booked you know and so they offered a, uh, a very good price you know mm. and then when I found the money that I said now is that is an indication I should take the flight you know? there you go it's a, it was a sign <laughs> so but uh, and the helmet only pisses me off because uh, because when when somebody comes, I mean I told him, I tell why I get headache from it because uh, because of the policeman when they, when he approaches and 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 and, and asks me well, where's your helmet and I get headache. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when I left Australia, you yeah, know, yeah. and I couldn't even pay at the office because you have to send it to the to the tax department, you know. And and when I left Australia from Darwin, I went to the police station. And there was a woman policeman, and I said, "Look, this is what happened to me in Clongarry. I, 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 I should, I'm leaving Australia now. What, what would you suggest? Should I, should I pay, or should I?" She said, "Well, when you, well, if you don't want to come back to Australia, and I don't think it never happens, you, you just go. You don't pay, but uh, it's up to you. You know, if you want to pay." And so I, so I said, "Look, I better pay." Or and then she asked, well, "What happened? Where does it? What happened?" Yeah, I said, "In, in Clongarry, I was fined for not wearing the." Helmet. And she said, what? It could, it could only have happened in Cloncarry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. uh, by the way, in um, the Northern Territory, it uh, was not a, a law that you should wear the helmet. It was only in Queensland. Oh, okay. Yep. So, yeah, yep. interesting. At that time, anyway. Hmm. So uh, anyway, that kind of thing happens with a with 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 a helmet and with a rear mirror. And the rear mirror is much more. It's life saving. Mm-hmm. The the helmet. Listen, when you're on the bike like I am, with a being being carefully, I never fall off the bike. I never fall off the bike. I tell you. You drive accordingly. You know, there's a hole in the road, and they say people fall down, and they say um, it was that the hole is to blame. <laughs> that I fall, no, because you're to blame because the, it's like you, you, uh, the, the tree was there, and I drove against the tree. Yeah, you bloody idiot! Don't you see the tree? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Now you, you, you blame the tree for for hitting the tree. Yeah, and you blame the hole for falling down. But I guess the helmet's good if you're in a town, in a city, and a car. If a car bumps into you, like if they hit you fast, you die. But if no, they bump if into you, you have a vehicle. You have to drive according to safety, or you have to drive according to the conditions, and you never have to make an accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I got to ask you, Heinz. Um, tell me, so. You said the condoms to to stop you from being raped, uh, not stop you from being raped, in case a woman wants to rape you. Was there a point in time when you stopped carrying the condoms? It's a joke. It's a joke. (laughs) I know. It's a joke. (laughs) Yeah, but you happily happily let the woman rape you. Well, on the road, you, you don't have a, you know, uh, you're always sex deprived, you know. That's what it is, what happens, you know. That's true, I'm sure. I have yeah. also about, uh, that's, uh, 
we'll see that's not condoms, uh, uh, but I have something else here about women, you know. Okay, unfulfilled love uh, only happened to me once, and I know it's a disease and a terrible one. I never felt as sick as helpless for anything to do, as angry, as frustrated, as uncontrolled. This lasted for months. I wasn't young at the time, but the most, like most diseases, it heals. Mm-hmm. Alas, with scars. Yeah. After that, at one longer relationship lasting over a period of eight years. Mind you, I wasn't going to give up my travels. We were together only sporadically. The woman didn't want to be second in in importance and got married when she found the right partner. She was great. Never had headache or was tired. I didn't like her shopping habits. All my travel style got mixed up. Always included her in my routings. She refused to do any cycling herself. We went to places with other transport when she left. A much more intensive way of traveling started for me after uh, all years after I became record travel years. But that's not what I wanted to tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Earlier, I had a number of short affairs lasting usually uh, until I left the country. Okay. Otherwise, a number of one night night stands. I wasn't too lucky with this. In my younger years, I had encounters with semi-prostitutes, lasting as long as I paid the food, the hotel, and gave presents or money sometimes. Yeah, like a relationship of convenience, huh? This was mostly in Latin America or in Asia, never in the last 30 years or so. Unlike the need for food or water, the need for sex cannot so easily be resolved. Of course, on the other hand, the lack of water can be fatal. 24 hours in 45 degrees, you are dead. Without food, you die less quickly. Mm-hmm. But you rarely die of sex deprivation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so tell me, um, I, I know, I know that the the relationship, the the love that didn't work out was a uh, it was a Belarusian girl, right? I believe. Well, it, it, she always said whenever I met her again, she said, "If you're not marrying me now, it's over." But it wasn't over because she had any, she never had any more prospective uh, possibilities of finding somebody he wanted. She wanted, she didn't want a Russian man. She didn't like them. And, uh, and she wanted a businessman, but, uh, mm. but, well, she looked, I, I think, I suspect, I was riding around the world for many, many years, and I claim I have no money. It cannot be. You have been, yeah, he's lying, she was mm-hmm. probably thinking. You know, he's only telling me, he's, uh, you know, he, 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 he's, he must be a millionaire. He only is hiding this money, you know. So yeah. I better 
him. I better stick to him. <laughs> <laughs> so every time, since he didn't, until one time I came back from a, a trip around the Caribbean, and I called her, and she was working at the time. She was a translator, and she worked at the time as an English businessman. And he had been divorced. He had five children, and he had proposed her. And so that was the time when she said, Laura, uh, that cyclist, maybe, maybe, maybe he's, 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 he's actually really poor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I called her, and she said, I'm married now. Yeah, I've eaten the same. Yeah, I've never seen her again, but I got this Ryan Anderson. He's uh, digging in my past in my early times, and yeah. I give him the the uh, the, uh, the 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 duty to find out what happened to her. Yeah, yeah. She finds out it was everybody that what happened to them. You know, he found out about about the guy who shot in uh, when he when he rescued me. We got in the shoot. He shot me in the foot. I mean, uh, what he what happened to him, and um, and he died of a heart attack um, when he was still pretty young and his, wow. his wife is an artist in Ingolstadt if I, he visited even visited her you know and she told him the story of when when uh, when the shooting she, her, her story was a little bit different from my story actually oh wow Yeah, it's interesting, and and so I hope that maybe Ryan Anderson, uh, Ryan Anderson finds out what happened with Zoya yeah yeah so Are there any regrets in the sense of the, I mean, the bike tour in general? You, uh, obviously, you can't live with the regrets of, of a 50-year tour, but in, in never finding the right travel partner, a love of, you know, um, a, no, a relationship? No, but I mean, uh, traveling alone is the only way to do, you know, because, yeah, really, you can, you can um, uh, make yourself available for every new encounter, you know, which you can't when you're with a partner. To yeah. You have to always listen to and uh, and a woman especially you know and uh, while well, it's nice to have but but uh, on the other hand you know you can uh, if if you are in, uh, if you are not with a woman but maybe with another another friend um you can see things with different eyes and mm -hmm. you can communicate with it that's uh, pop that's positive you know but uh, but it rarely works out with people together because there's always uh, unless you have one who is the boss you know and he, he decides and the other one is following you yeah. but then you have a slave you know it's, just, you, it's very difficult if both of them and most of the tra people that travel around the world with a bicycle they are quite independent reminded mm -hmm. and also women you know women travel around the world by bicycle also you know they, they would never go with another man because they want to be alone Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they are also having done all the encounters that I have, you know, that the men would be in the way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've talked to people and I've read, I've, I've read stories uh, from bike tours that, yeah, exactly that. They, they choose to, to travel solo because you, the, the encounters are much more rich and deep, you know? Yeah, and you, and mm -hmm. you can choose, you know, and, and you can only blame yourself for any wrong decision. Yeah, you cannot you can blame the other one because you 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 like you like you if you ride against a tree, you know you, you blame the tree, but that's okay. <laughs> but if you ride into the, the, the your fellow bike rider, you know he says, "Hey, you did it. You do you? Why don't you take care? You know you, you can only blame. I mean, when you are alone, you can only blame yourself. You know. Yeah. Yeah. True. All right, Heinz. Do you think we can? Stop for today. I wanna. I wanna take a bit of time and I listen. I also want to. 
stop because yeah. I want to look at my how many more books are appearing <laughs> on my email. Yeah, and it's getting late there for you, so I don't want to keep you up till four in the morning. <laughs> okay, no problem. Uh, next time you fly over here. Yeah, I wish I could. Uh, maybe next year. Next year, I want to come to Europe. This year, we're doing a little touring in Canada, my wife and I. Good to talk to you. Um, See, I talk to you under the table. I love it. No, no, I love it. I I just, I know there's so much here that I I want to kind of unpack it. It's like in Russia. We do it by talking, but in Russia, you do it by drinking. Well, when I come visit you, we can do it with the drinking, too. (laughs) We'll see who is first under the table, eh? Yeah, it'll probably be me these days. All right, hi, it's it's great talking to you. We'll catch up soon. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Ciao. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me to keep going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at chris at biketoadventures.com or go to the website biketoadventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and the touring tips page. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, helping me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and continue to produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.